what is it like being one of the most infamous warlords in the world? <laughs> I have to start with that question. I'm sorry. Well, <laughs> I will be the first to say that I am uh, not a warlord. Um, <laughs> the, the movie that was made was called War Dogs. But uh, I think most people, when they say the uh, warlord is like, you know, someone who runs a militia and generally. Uh, warlord just sounds so good, though. Yeah, I'm not to me. <laughs> I don't want to be a warlord. But uh, yeah, you know, I've I've never uh, led men in battle. Um, I've right. ne- you know, never suppressed a population's rights or anything like that. Right. right. Um, I did supply weapons and ammunition for a brief period of my life a long time ago. But you guys, but, uh, you guys did have posters of Nick Cage over your, all over your office, right? We were fans <laughs> of, of Lord of War at the time. Yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. How did this whole thing start? Like, can you walk me through your mm-hmm. childhood meeting Ephraim for the first time? What, sure. were, what were your guys' childhood like? Were you guys really like smoking weed all day, every day? Uh, at a certain point in our lives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, not when we first met. We were uh, young teenagers. I'm actually four years older than him. And, you know, in the movie, they say we're the same age, but we're not. Uh, so I was four years older than him. I think I was like uh, 15 or 16. Uh, when I met him, so he was like 11 or 12 and, uh, we, we both went, the way we met was, uh, our, both of our families are Orthodox Jews. And so we both went to the same synagogue. We didn't go to the same school, so we didn't know each other from there. We both went to private Jewish schools, but, uh, but we didn't go to the same school. Um, but we both went to the same synagogue. So, and neither of us liked to pray. So we would sneak out during prayers and go hang out on the basketball courts and, um, and that's kind of, you know, uh, I had friends who were like two years younger than me and they thought he was entertaining. And so, uh, you know, they befriended him and that's kind of how he was like brought into uh, mm. my circle of friends and that's how we met. Mm. Yeah. And so what were you doing? What was your, your primary source of income back then? And <clears throat> how much influence did your religion have in your early life? Like were your parents mm. really pushing it hard? So my dad was a Orthodox rabbi. Oh, so, okay. you know, he, uh, a member of the clergy. So yeah, he was pushing it hard, <laughs> but I think it, even, uh, amongst people who know who, you know, what Orthodox Jews are like, know that, uh, you don't need to be a member of the clergy in order to, uh, uh, you know, apply large amounts of pressure to your children to be religious. That's a major part of the, uh, of the culture and, uh, you know, the community. Mm. So yeah, it was a very intense, uh, you know, by relative terms to American society, a uh, way of growing up. Mm-hmm. Uh, I never really liked it. Uh, I never liked being, you know, leading the religious life. Uh, so as I got older, I, I eventually dropped it completely. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place. Like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Now, didn't at one point in your parents send you to Israel to study? Yes. So got in a bit of trouble in high school. Um, and, uh, you know, I, they did this random drug test and, uh, and, uh, you know, I came positive for weed and of course they all thought it was the same as like doing heroin. So they sent me to like outpatient rehab and, you know, the school was going to kick me out. Uh, but they are like, you know, if you go to Israel and study for a year, we'll still give you your diploma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, you know, I wanted to go to Israel anyway, cause a lot of my friends were going, it's a thing that a lot of Orthodox, uh, kids do after graduating high school, they go to a year uh, in Israel and study and depending on the kind of person you are more party than study you know i was planning to do more of the partying <laughs> than the studying um but um so i was i wanted to go to israel anyway so i agreed and uh went to israel uh ended up staying for two years first year i just partied the second year i actually studied and uh, eventually i became a bit religious uh in my own way not in the same way as my parents but more of like a <clears throat> kind of like a hippie uh, you know, spiritual, uh, meditative type of, uh, you know, br- you know, flavor of the religion rather than the, um, the traditional way, which is much more, uh, based on, uh, lots of rituals and, you know, like habitual stuff. That's kind of how most, most Orthodox, uh, um, cult, the culture is based around like a lot of very rigid rituals. So mm. I didn't like that, but I did, you know, become a bit more religious, uh, until I left Israel, went to university of Florida took an anthropology course and realized that everything I'd learned was garbage. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I mean, I realized that it all, that at least science contradicted the vast majority of the claims, mm. uh, you know, that of what I was studying in Israel. And so there was no objective um, proof to at least, you know, the claims that, that the community I grew up in were making as far as, uh, you know, as far as that goes. So I realized that I didn't have to be, you know, lead a religious life if I didn't want it. And, uh, you know, that, you know, opened up my, uh, the possibilities of, you know, finding my own spirituality. And people have this idea of that if you're not religious, you're not spiritual. I think that's completely untrue. Religion is, is, uh, more of a, um, a way that, uh, it's a way to create social structure, mm-hmm. right? So there's right. rules and there's hierarchies and, and, you know, there's an official philosophy of like how the world works, et cetera, right? Spirituality yeah. is your own personal experience, you know, like I find a lot of spirituality in music, you know, I'm a musician. So, you know, when I listen to music and I create music, I, I feel myself, you know, become on like a, a different level of consciousness. And I find it very spiritual and very fulfilling. And I connect with myself and with the universe. And, you know, a lot of things that the way people describe, uh, you know, meditating and, uh, or for religious people who go into like very deep prayer. Uh, so there's a lot of, you know, uh, uh, connections between spirituality and, and religion, but they are not the same thing. And I realized that once I didn't, wasn't shackled by the uh, traditions of this, of the religion that I grew up with, I could find my own spirituality and, uh, you know, uh, and that was much more effective for me. Did uh, the role of psychedelics Mm -hmm. help you 
developed this point of view, this unique point of view that you had coming mm-hmm. from a religious background? And yeah, so I did experiment with psychedelics and you know various other things as many teenagers do, and um, uh, psychedelics in particular are a very spiritual drug, you know, compared to most of the others. And uh, I, you know, had some pretty uh, deep insights into myself and into, you know, the culture that I grew up in while doing psychedelics. Uh, One of the most intense experiences I've ever had was doing LSD by the shore of the Dead Sea in Israel. And like, I felt like time stop and as if I was like existing in one eternal moment that like never ended. And because there was no time, there was no space. And like, I was the universe and the universe was me. And like, I felt it and I was it. And I think people who've done, had these kind of, um, it's a common experience. Actually, I didn't know that at the time, Mm -hmm. uh, for people on psychedelics to have these types of uh, experiences. And it affected me for years after that, you know, just knowing that that type of experience is possible um is a is a very profound um you know effect is that experience was it um exclusive to lsd or was it the same Mm -hmm. like with mushrooms or other psychedelics so for me mushrooms were a bit different you know it was more i think every every drug affects every person differently um depending on you know their psychological state and uh the environment they're in the people they're in their expectations um, the dose they take, you know, right. makes a big difference. Obviously. Uh, so, um, but, uh, for me, mushrooms have always been, well, once you get past the nausea part, which is not fun, um, uh, it's been more of like a fun thing and, and, um, uh, you know, like you laugh and you see cool things and, but with LSD, uh, it's always been a lot more philosophical and introspective for me. So I don't know why, you know one is the other but that's how my brain chemistry works right yeah Yeah, that's fascinating i know that because i know i know there's a a deep connection with psychedelics and ancient religions Mm. yeah um i've learned more about that recently i don't know a ton of the nuances about it but i know there's Mm -hmm. been studies that have shown like the ancient greeks and the romans Mm -hmm. have took uh, a certain type of plant that was uh responsible for some psychedelic experiences that can explain Mm -hmm. some of the some of the texts Mm -hmm. that would make a lot of sense. I mean, you know, when they, when it says that Moses saw the bush burning, but wasn't being consumed, right? the burning gas, you know, I mean, that's, I could easily see that while I'm on mushrooms, Mm. you know, or mescaline or whatever, you know, that's fascinating. So you're doing this and had you already become a masseuse at this point where you had, you started making money with massage therapy. And so when I went to, um, uh, University of Florida after Israel, I was 20 years old because I'd spent, you know, 18 to 20 in Israel. And I realized that I'd have to uh, pay for my own college. <laughs> and um, and I didn't want to get a minimum wage job, uh, you know, because all my friends were flipping burgers and whatever, making five, six bucks an hour. And I was like that, you know, that really sucks. And mm. uh, I had been in a car crash when I was 17 and got whiplash. And so I always had like neck issues and I was always trying to fix them. And then Uh, While I was in Israel, I was at a music festival and the local massage school there had a um, had free massages, you know, like a booth where they were giving out free massages. And I got my first massage, professional massage there. And it like fixed a lot of my issues. And I was like blown away. And so I I realized that um, I could learn to be a massage therapist 
and make like 75 to 100 bucks an hour instead of five, six bucks an hour. And so I could, you know, do one hour of work in a day and make more than my friends were making in the in, in eight hours in a day. And I could learn how to, you know, fix my own issues. And, you know, and it doesn't, you know, hurt with the ladies, you know, that you're a professional massage therapist, you know, they, no. they tend to like that too. So it was like a win, win, win. So uh, massage school, I did a, an accelerated program. I did it in uh, six months, got certified. And uh, when I was 20 years old, I got my massage therapy license and started practicing part time while I was in college. And um, at what at what point were you sourcing bed sheets? So um, and selling them to selling yeah. them to what to who are to you selling them to? Nursing homes, nursing mostly. homes. Okay, yeah, nursing homes and some hospitals. That's fascinating. Yeah. So was I, that something that you concocted, or was that something that you kind of like got the idea from somebody else? So what ha- had that happened because? Um, one of my friends, um, one of my friends who I had met in Israel, mm-hmm. uh, his dad owned a, a few nursing homes, and his dad put him into business after he came out of uh, he came back from Israel uh, in the nursing home supply business. So he was, uh, you know, buying from wholesalers, you know, bed sheets, towels, various medical equipment. And selling it to his dad's nursing homes, but also to, you know, the other nursing homes in the business. And he told me, but he would only buy from like uh, distributors in the United States. And he told me, look, you know, I know that because at the time I had gotten into selling um, SD cards, you know, I was like importing them from China. I, I found like bulk SD cards in China and I was selling them on eBay. I was making decent money um, because they're tiny. They're easy to ship right. and easy to store. So it's it was perfect. And um and so, you know, I, you know, we were, we were talking and, uh, schmoozing as us Jews say, and uh, <laughs> you're, schmoozing. Uh, you're schmoozing, you're schmoozing, you're schmoozing with the Jews. <laughs> so, um, uh, so we were talking and I told him about the SD card thing and he's like, Oh, you know, so you like doing some importing, you know how to find sources, you know, if you find sources for what I'm selling and you give it to me cheaper than what I'm buying it from those guys, I'd be happy to buy from you. So he gave me the stuff that he, you know, would sell. And I started Googling and looking online for sources and started asking for prices. And after, you know, a few weeks I got, you know, pretty good prices, much better than his distributors were given him. Mm. And so I started importing uh, bed sheets and towels uh, and bibs and, and uh, things of that nature. It wasn't mm. just bed sheets, but, uh, but a lot of the consumables, the textiles in particular. And I was mostly sourcing them in Pakistan because Pakistan apparently is very competitive on towels and bed mm. sheets. Um, and, uh, and so I started selling to him, I started selling to other people and that's, you know, that's how I got into that. But I, unlike the movie, I never was going like from nursing home to nursing home with a bunch of bed sheets. I was just doing everything in bulk. So like, I wouldn't even take possession of the goods, you know? So my apartment was not filled up with bed sheets as right. they portray in, in the film. That's um, yeah, I wouldn't even take possession. I was just being a broker. Yeah. It's interesting to me how you had this unique perspective at such a young age to get into arbitrage like that, to mm-hmm. get into buy, sourcing things for a certain price and selling them for a higher price. That mm-hmm. seems like it's a very rare trait for somebody in mm-hmm. their early 20s. I don't, I, mm-hmm. I don't think I knew anybody when I was that age that was doing that kind of thing. Well, my first business, I started when I was six. So... It's, it's a cute story. Um, my, uh, I was living in Israel at the time, so I was born in, in St. Louis, but, um, but, um, my parents moved to Israel, um, 
for my dad's work because he was a rabbi when I was a baby and I grew up there until I was eight years old and came to Miami. And while we were living in Israel, I was six years old and uh, there was this, um, we lived in an apartment building with that didn't have an elevator or a garbage chute. So you'd need to like take the trash down the stairs mm. to the low, into the corner, to the dumpster <laughs> and haul it over into the dumpster. And our mom, um, uh, you know, would ask, you know, the kids to take out the trash, you know, occasionally. I'm one of nine children, by the way. Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm number three from the top. <laughs> but because I'm one of the older ones, you know, I got a lot of the work uh, initially before the younger ones grew up. So uh, so our mom asked my older sister and I to take out the trash. And, you know, we were complaining, oh, it's so hard to take out the trash. We don't want to do it. It's, you know, it's you have to walk so far. You have to go down the stairs. And my dad uh, says to us, you know, you guys are looking at this all wrong, right? Instead of complaining that it's such a chore, you can look at this as an opportunity. Think about all of our neighbors who don't like to take out the trash too, right? What if you go to them and you say, hey, every other day I'll come and pick up your trash and take it to the dumpster, right? Because people don't empty the trash every day. Every other day is fine. And you give me like, you know, a quarter a week, right? And so we're like, oh, money. I like that. <laughs> so we were like, that's a good idea. So we went to all our neighbors and we made them this offer and we signed up, I think, seven or eight neighbors. And um, we got like our mom's big like uh, shopping cart. It was this wire thing on on like wheels. And we'd fill up the cart with like trash bags and, you know, ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk down the stairs, you know, and to the corner, to the um, to the um, uh, dumpster and and empty it. And after about a week, uh, you know, my sister and I were like, this is so much work, you know, because you know, it's, it's physical labor and we were small. <laughs> and so my dad goes and we were, we told our dad, oh, we're, we're going to quit. This is too much work. And my dad says, well, what if they paid you made twice as much money? Would you quit then? And we're like, well, twice as much money. Maybe we would maybe that's worth it. And he's like, so then tell them that you're going to raise the price. And we're like, but we can't just tell them that we're going to raise the price because we just told them what the price was a week ago. And he's like, but if you don't raise the price, you're going to quit. So they either want it or they don't. Right. Mm. And we're like, that's true. So we went to all the neighbors and we're like, we're raising the, we're doubling the price to 50 cents a week. And um, they most of them like accepted it. Uh, one neighbor uh um, complained they're like you can't raise the price you know double you five cents this week maybe 10 cents next week you know you know but we're like no that's the price we stuck to our guns he's like fine fine you know and he he did it and one neighbor quit on us and uh from then on we always saw their daughter take out the trash which she'd never done before because we i guess they realized why are we paying the neighbor's kids to take out our, you know the trash when we have a perfectly capable kid right. of our own to do it so so that was our first, that was the first business. And that lasted after a few weeks, my sister quit because she just decided she didn't want to do it. And I realized if she quit, I'm getting double the money again. So, you know, so this is totally worth it. So I kept on going for like a few months and I built up like a big Ziploc bag filled with, you know, shekels, you know, about the value of a quarter. Um, and uh, wait, this was in, this, this was in, in Israel. Oh, this, this was, was in Israel. still in Israel. Yeah, okay. in Israel. Uh, yeah, they're shekels. I, I say a quarter just so people okay. understand what the value is, but a shekel is worth about a quarter. Um, so I had a big Ziploc bag of quarters and I felt very rich. And every time there would be an ice cream truck that would come by every day, you know, with its little ice cream song. 
And I would be like, I have money. I could go buy myself an ice cream. And so every day I would buy myself an ice cream and I became a fat little six-year-old. <laughs> yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. The, the, the money thing is very interesting to me, yeah. how your your parents, your father instilled the value. Even at six years old, you understood the value of money. Right. Well, I knew I wanted ice cream. And you I knew, knew you that, wanted ice cream yes. and it costed money. Exactly. Yeah. And my dad was not going to buy it for me. So... Really? Yeah. So if the ice cream truck came by prior to this. Oh, my parents never bought us ice cream. Never would buy never. you. Never. What would they say to you? Um, say, your dad, dad, I want ice cream. Oh, it's not a special occasion. Really? <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I feel like that's a very uh, rare lesson that gets taught to kids at the age of six in this country, mm. especially nowadays. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So that is something that got instilled in you in a very young age and stayed yeah. with you. And yeah. you kind of, that's kind of what helped you evolve into the business of arbitraging stuff sourced in different countries, such as yeah. bed sheets for um, old folks' homes and re yeah. retirement centers and stuff like that. Yeah, I've always been looking for opportunities. Right. You know, it's just something that. So it's something that you, it. it's yeah. something that you and Ephraim yeah. had in common. Yes. He yeah. was just a little bit different in his tactics. He, yeah, he definitely was a bit different, but. Uh, so at what point did motivated. you, at what yeah. point did you and Ephraim mm. um, reunite? So we reunited when I was uh, about 23. Um, I had been in college for a few years. You know, the bed sheets thing was going, the electronics from China thing was going pretty well. Um and um, he came back, he came back, he was 19 years old, and he came back from L.A. He had been sent to L.A., I think, when he was about 16 or so, because he got, he got kicked out of school for smoking weed as well. Uh, but his parents, the way they dealt with it was they decided to send him over to, uh, to, to work for his uncle. His uncle, you know, I guess the idea was, oh, if you're not going to take school seriously, you're going to work in the real world, you know? And so they sent him over to his uncle who owns a big pawn shop in South central LA. And, uh, he had him working in the, in the warehouse, you know, moving boxes. And, but Ephraim became obsessed with guns. I mean, I think from a very early age, he was very obsessed with guns. Just, you know, some guys like cars, some guys like guitars, some guys like guns. He was right. one of those gun guys and, you know, his uncle sold guns, you know, as most pawn shops do. And so he just became obsessed with it and he learned about every type of gun and like where it was made and, and like what the market was like and, you know, how you could, you know, buy from here and sell to there. He started uh, frequenting the gun forums, uh, the gun boards, I think they call them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, started buying, uh, you know, used guns from people, you know, under his uncle's name and selling them and started making like some profit like that. And then his uncle uh, was selling to the local police, the local state, uh, a city and state police. And, uh, you know, the way you sell to the government is you have to put a bid in online and then the government decides who's, you know, the best, you know, price, delivery date, reliability, et cetera. And so his uncle was doing that. And so he learned how to, you know, bid on these contracts on these, uh, government contracts from his uncle worked with his uncle for two to three years, uh, made a bunch of money and then claims that his uncle screwed him out of a bunch of money. His uncle claims that he screwed him out of a bunch of money. I believe in both, you know? So it's just, you know, that kind of family, mm -hmm. but, um, uh, they've had issues, you know, there, uh, but, um, uh, and so he quit and work came back to Miami and, um, 
uh, decided to start his own company, and and this was in 2004. So he started bidding on federal contracts. This was right after the invasion of Iraq, and so there was this huge amount of contracts going f- to uh, rebuild Iraq. You know, because the United States bombed it and took it over, and now was trying to build a democratic new government. And uh, part of that is arming the uh, you know their local police and and army. And so they needed a lot of equipment to do that. And so they started putting out these contracts and he started bidding on these contracts. And because he was so uh, uh, knowledgeable about you know, the the gun industry, uh, he was very competitive and he started winning a lot of these contracts and, you know, multimillion dollar contract. How old was he? He was, I think he was 18 when he came back to, to Miami. Okay. And then he was 19 when we started working together. So he, w- he was working by himself in Miami for about a year. Uh, before we bumped into each other, um, we he came over a mutual friend's house to smoke weed. We were smoking weed together. He asked me, you know, what I was doing these days, and I told him about the bed sheets, about the you know the electronics, the SD cards, and he's like, oh, that's cool, that's cool. You know, you're doing, you know, you're finding sources, you're doing licensing, you're, you're doing, doing essentially the same thing. Exactly. He's like, you're pretty much doing what I do, but I'm doing it on a much bigger scale. So you know, maybe you can come work with me, you know, well, I think you'll make a lot more money. And I was like, curious, I was like, um, how much money have you made? You know, you know, cause he was like 19, you know, <laughs> and he's like, and he goes to me, he's like, you know, I'm going to tell you, but not to brag. I'm just going to, I want to inspire you. And I'm like, he's like, you know, it's complicated because you know how much money I have like money coming in from deals. I, you know, owe much, some people money. I'm like, how much money do you have right now in the bank? And he pops open his computer and and he logs into his uh, bank account and he shows me. And he had $1.8 million in cash in his bank account and he was 19 years old. And like that blew my mind. I was like, whoa, you know, I don't know anyone. Who, and I knew he made it himself. Like his parents, you know, didn't give him that money or anything like that. So I was like, this guy knows a business very, very well. And, you know, I can learn a lot from him. And so I was very inspired because I didn't have nearly that much, you know, with all my, uh, you know, wheeling and dealing of, you know, in my businesses. I was like, he's obviously doing way better than me. Um, Not that I was doing badly. I was more than comfortable and making a lot more money than other kids my age, you know, but but he was on a whole other level. So I was like, I want to, you know, I could learn a lot from him. So I was like, okay, I'm in, you know, let's do this. And uh, that's when he started teaching me you know, like how the government, the uh, procurement system works. And that was when I first started learning about uh, weapons and ammunition and all various military equipment. I had no idea about any of this. Uh, I was just a musician, you know, science nerd, massage therapist, you know, but like I I never owned a gun in my life. You know, I didn't really care about guns, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, that was like his expertise. So he started teaching me all that and I started learning all that. How did he learn about the website where you can mm-hmm. bid on these federal contracts? FedBizOps? Mm-hmm. FedBizOps. Yeah. yeah. How did he yeah. find out? Was that from his uncle? I believe so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So essentially you guys would log into this this website that mm-hmm. list that had a list of contracts mm-hmm. the federal government mm-hmm. wanted to hire small businesses for to fulfill. Correct. Well, it's it's uh, well, it's still there. Anyone can go check it out. I checked it out today. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah, you can find a lot of interesting stuff they're looking to buy. Uh, they're looking to buy everything. So it's not just small businesses. They list everything that uh, that they want to buy over there. I think they're required to by law. Other than I think the CIA has like you know. 
probably like a, I don't know, like a $10 billion dark money budget that they don't have to tell people what they spend it on. But, uh, but uh, for the vast majority of, you know, the federal governments, I don't even know at this point, so is it like $2 trillion budget, something mm. like that? They have to list and they, it, because by law, they have to um, <clears throat> buy things competitively because otherwise they're wasting taxpayers money. They have to get the best deal for the taxpayer. So to do that, they have a website and they list everything that they want to buy and they open it out for bid. Now, different things, depending on what it is, uh, there's different rules, right? So like if they want to buy an F-35 fighter jet, there's only Lockheed Martin makes it, right? So that's what they call a sole source contract. They still need to list it on the site, you know, in order to inform the public. Really? Yeah. Yeah. We're going to be spending this money on this. Uh, But it's not an open bid. It's not, you know, you can't bid on F-35s because you don't make it. Uh, you know, only Lockheed Martin makes. And usually they do something like um, uh, for for like the sole source contracts, they usually do something called a, a cost plus contract where they'll pay the company what it costs them to build the item plus an agreed upon uh, profit margin. Uh, now, NASA has run into a lot of issues with this, which is why a lot of government projects have a lot of cost overruns because the companies have a big incentive to to uh, inflate the costs after be- they get the bid, after they get the bid, because the more it costs them to build, the more dollars they make because it's a percentage of what they spend. You know, mm-hmm. so let's say they have a two percent profit margin. If the thing costs them, you know, ten million dollars instead of one million dollars, you know, they're making ten times more money even though their margin is the same. Exactly. So, you know, that's why all these government projects are so uh, overrun, you know, why their cost overruns are so common. Mm. Um, But for, so that's for like sole source contracts. But for most competitive contracts, the way it works is it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like eBay, right? You know, they say we want to buy, you know, 10,000 guns or, you know, 100,000 meals ready to eat MREs or, you know, boots or or whatever, fuel, anything. And they'll say, we want these items. It has to have these characteristics. Um, You know, we have to have it delivered to this place by this time. Give us your best offer. And then all the companies who are qualified to bid on that uh, can uh, give them the best, the be- their best offer. And the government looks at all the offers and decides which one has the best value to the government, which is a combination of factors. Usually it's a combination of price, delivery date, reliability of the supplier. And then the government decides what's the best deal for them. And then they pick it and you know, sign the contract to that person and that person delivers and then they collect their check and make their profit margin. So essentially yeah. for a couple of 20-year-olds t- starting out, you can start a business you can start bidding on some of the low level contracts a couple mm-hmm. hundred thousand maybe mm-hmm. a couple million dollars yes. right. and get your feet wet yeah. and b- slowly build a reputation for yourself for exactly delivering. so so actually the way they work um is usually for contracts that are under a hundred thousand dollars in value they don't require what they call past performance which is proof that you've mm. done business with these kind of items before Right. So because they feel they feel like it's a small enough amount that they can roll the dice on people with no experience. And, you know, if those guys have a better price, hey, maybe they can do it. And if they fail, then, you know, the government doesn't it's not such a big deal to the government for a hundred thousand dollar contract. But once you do a few of those, now you have past performance. You can prove that you've successfully delivered these items Mm -hmm. to the government. And now you could bid on bigger contracts like million dollar plus contracts that require that level of documentation and proof that you have, you know, the experience to do that. 
Do other countries and other governments have the same system set up? Do you so know? most governments have a similar system. Um, now, depending on on the um, you know the corruption level of the government, you know some of them are more or less transparent. But most uh, most governments, definitely most um, uh, democracies, have a more or less open uh, a bidding system. Yeah, because it makes sense. You know, they want to get the most bang for the buck. You know, they want to. Uh, uh, you know, because they have a limited budget, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so they don't want to get ripped off, right? The only, the places you find the government getting ripped off usually are places where there's kickbacks being given. So Russia is famous for this. Um, you know that, and there's a lot of stories out of Ukraine. You know, like where all the jeeps had like the cheap Chinese tires, and they were like failing on the road early in the war. Is this recent? Oh yeah, this is the just recent and mm-hmm. early in the war. That's that was one of the things in the news that they had. Um, they didn't have the proper tires because someone in the Russian military uh, went cheap on that contract and properly pocketed the difference, and then they all all their tires failed in the convoy. You know, the, on the way to Kiev. Uh, you know, that was like one of the issues that they were facing. So that's the downside of having a corrupt system is that the money isn't spent as officially as efficiently. And, uh, and, you know, the people that you're trying to supply kind of get screwed. How much attention do yeah. you pay to conflicts that are going on now? Like, for example, mm-hmm. the, what's going on in Ukraine? Do you, with your background, is mm-hmm. it you automatically drawn to these kind of things and looking at, looking at the deep nuances of it so i'm i'm just a very curious person in general and even though my current business has nothing to do with uh you know any international military uh conflicts um uh i'm i'm just very curious person so i do stay up to date uh i I read the economist you know that's has you know i would say medium level uh depth coverage on most things um so i i am you know, very interested in those things, but just from a personal perspective, not, not, not a financial yeah, perspective, not a financial. <laughs> I mean, I do deal internationally with my current business, uh, but you know, so, I mean, I, you know, I sell music equipment, um, mm-hmm. to musicians now and, uh, you know, we've sold to Russia. Well, we don't anymore, you know, but, uh, they weren't a very big market anyway, so it wasn't a big <laughs> deal for me, you know, but, uh, but I still pay attention to what's going on in the world. Yeah. So when you see mm-hmm. stories in the headlines of, mm-hmm. of, uh, the Biden administration dropping thirteen billion dollars in Ukraine. Mm-hmm. How is that? How is that working? That's obviously a broad headline, right? right. So, how right. specifically is that? All of the the thirteen billion dollars is that broken down on websites like FedBizOps mm-hmm. and being bid on, or is all of this going to big companies like Lockheed Martin mm-hmm. and Raytheon? Right. How, how does that work? So, the way they do it. So, oh, at least with Ukraine. I know early in the war, I don't, um, uh, I don't know what they're doing. I'm sure now they're, they've got lots of contracts open for bid, but, um, early in the war, they, you know, they had to get Ukraine, everything was an emergency, right? So they had to get Ukraine, lots of equipment as quickly as possible. And the way they did that, I mean, if they went through the the contracting system, it would literally take months, you know, because they have to have a certain amount of time to, to post the thing, you know, with, you know, like a few weeks for people to notice it and to gather their, their offers. And then the government needs to analyze it. And then they need to award the contract and then they need to deliver on the contract. And that takes 
minimum two months, I would say, mm. um, the, you know, for the uh, stuff that you need, like military, you know, like licensing for military equipment to move goods, military goods across borders could be longer because you need overflight permits. Uh, you know, if you're shipping guns or ammunition, uh, you need to get specific um, uh, permission from every country you fly over. So that takes time. So the way the the military did it early in the war was they just gave Ukraine from their own stockpiles. So they didn't have to buy it. Okay. You know, so like, for example, like the HIMARS that is in the news, uh, you know, the, the rocket launching system that is currently, uh, you know, has greater range than the Russian artillery, which is why Ukraine is doing so well, um, because they could shoot them, you know, out of their range and blow up their ammo depots. Uh, that was stuff that the U.S. military already had in stock for their own use. And then they just gave all that to Ukraine on military aircraft so they didn't you know, it was much easier for them to get over flight permits. The U.S. military, you know, as already all that worked out and they have amazing logistics, U.S. military. And um, uh, and now what they're doing is they're trying to replenish their own stockpiles by going, you know, uh, to Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman and on all the other uh, Raytheon, all the com companies that make all this equipment that they've given to Ukraine. And they're trying to replenish their own stockpiles. So that's kind of how they they uh, got the equipment to Ukraine much faster than they would if they did the traditional contracting route. I just had a, a former <clears throat> CIA agent in here two mm -hmm. days ago, and he was uh, he was working on the counterproliferation efforts in Iran. Mm -hmm. And uh, I th he didn't say it, but I I got from what he was saying that he did a lot of dealing in Russia, too. And what mm -hmm. he what he was explaining about the Ukraine Russia thing similar to what you said he said that um russia's artillery like mm -hmm. like if we're going if we're talking about nukes yeah their nuclear capabilities are similar to ours yeah probably not as good but when yeah. it comes to like ground artillery mm -hmm. that we are way more advanced than they are yeah so they have quantity we have quality you know they they have massive massive stockpiles or at least they did right and they've been using a lot of those up now mm -hmm. but um uh they have massive massive stockpiles uh but their their technical um capabilities are not as good as the west's in in almost all respects um yeah, they've got ICBMs, so yeah, I mean, they can wipe everybody off the map if they wish, and that's a, a big difference. But, uh, but, you know, like their airplanes aren't as, as advanced as ours, you know, their, um, um, their, our, you know, their general, their communication systems aren't as advanced as ours. You know, the West is a more technologically advanced organization, mm -hmm. you know, than the, than the Russians are. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have a lot more people, we've been industrialized for a lot longer. So there's good reasons for that. And of course, they've dealt with a horrible history, um, uh, you know, which has held them back and they've got endemic corruption, which, and the, all these things are uh, uh, very bad for, uh, you know, development of, of society at large and, and technology, you know, by extension. So, yeah, it's it's true. Um, the West is way more advanced. And uh, I, I would say that, you know, I mean, Putin knows that, you know, <laughs> he knows right. that the West is much more powerful. And if it came to a, a conventional war, the West would wipe him off the map easily. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, you know, it's only the nukes that that keep, you know, everybody from fighting each other outright. Right. Yeah. Um, 
did you guys, this is, might be a stupid question, but I mm. feel like I have to ask it. Did you guys ever do any deals involving nuclear weapons? No, no, <laughs> no, no, no. That's, that would be Raytheon that they make the nukes. Oh, they yeah, do. Yeah, they make the nukes. Sole source contract. Yeah. Wow. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the coolest things about your story mm. is that from my own perspective, I didn't know if we're just going back a year ago, mm -hmm. I didn't know shit about geo geopolitical, the geopolitical landscape mm -hmm. of the world. Right. Um, I've learned it by having people like you on here, mm -hmm. but there has listening to your story and reading that book has been the most entertaining form of learning about the geopolitical yeah. world and landscape and militaries yeah. than anything. Yeah. Like, so when you started this in this mm -hmm. business with Ephraim, how much did you know about the relationships mm -hmm. between countries and the different mm -hmm. games going on? Uh, almost nothing. <laughs> I was like, you know, I was just like, you know, a, a college student. Uh, I mean, I've always read the news, you know, I've always been, you know, curious about the world in general. You know, I'm, uh, I was studying chemistry in college at the time. So, you know, I'm a bit more of a scientific bent, um, uh, you know, and part of that is just, uh, you know, I love knowledge in general. You know, it's uh, it's just something I enjoy learning th about things. Mm -hmm. But um, obviously, there's infinite realms of knowledge and the vast, and all of us are ignorant in almost all of them, except our you know own little specialty, right? Um, so, uh, you know, I like being a generalist. You know, that's you know knowing a little bit about everything. Uh, but I definitely wasn't focusing on uh, on uh, geopolitics uh, before. You know, working in that field. Uh, I had a, a very one of my best friends actually, uh, who ended up being involved in the War Dog story later. Um, he was a uh, political science major, so he was, you know, one of these people who was constantly ranting and raving about, you know, uh, various, you know, uh, conflicts and who's right and who's wrong and you know who's going to do what, you know, and you know what their response is going to be. So I kind of, you know, that kind, I kind of gleaned a lot of information, you know, just by listening to him, and he's very, very knowledgeable about that stuff because he was studying it. Um, but I definitely learned a lot more, you know, during the course of uh, of doing business because I had to. I was I was uh, we were doing business with all these countries, and uh, you know, being a f even countries we weren't doing business with, like Russia, we were being affected by because they were trying to block our overflight permits right. and, and things like that. So we had to pay attention, you know, like you know who, you know, what did the government say recently? You know, like are they going to? Uh, you know, um, are they moving into, you know, like various regions, you know, like, uh, just an example. Um, we had, we had a, uh, uh, air, uh, um, a 747 aircraft of a cargo aircraft, uh, filled with ammo. This is in the book, um, that was stopped on the tarmac in Kyrgyzstan. Right. And they claimed we didn't have the licensing, even though we did. I mean, the plane wouldn't have taken off with it if it didn't have the licensing. They always check everything before they take off. Um, but they claimed that we didn't. And we had no idea why they were doing this. And uh, then it turned out that um, that Russia was trying to to like get the U.S. out of the Central Asian sphere of influence. And so they were leaning on the on the politicians in Kyrgyzstan to stop uh, renting their air base to the United States in Kyrgyzstan. Kyrgyzstan is right outside of Afghanistan, uh, and it was being it was their air base was being used as a staging uh, uh, place to fly goods into Afghanistan. Uh, so 
Russia was was pressuring them to stop letting the U.S. Uh, use their air base. And eventually they came, the U.S. was like, you know, we really need this. And eventually the Kyrgyz, they, they just doubled the rent. They were, they were renting it. And I think they were renting it for, I forgot the exact numbers, but either for like 30 million a year and they doubled it to 60 million, something like that. And the U.S. was like, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll pay you whatever even even though you just doubled it and that's like a total mafia move and they were holding our plane hostage during negotiations you know that was like is this the story when you're at you're sitting yeah. at sushi and you get the call yeah that's right yeah that's that's how the book opens yeah yeah oh exactly my God. yeah that's so yeah. wild all right i want to reel it back a little bit um, sure at what point was this before or after you started working for Ephraim when you had that big xbox deal so that was our first our first uh, uh deal that we tried to do together it ended okay. up failing but um, that's kind of how we started working together. Um, I, you know, because I was buying, uh, electronics from China, uh, um, you know, I had come across, uh, this offer to uh, the Xbox had just been released. The original Xbox this is a while ago. And, uh, the Xbox had just been released and, um, I saw someone like offering, I forgot, it was like a large amount of them online and they were all sold out in all the stores. And I thought it was like super weird, you know, like how do these people have a large amount? It was like know? around a hundred thousand. Yeah. It? it was an enormous amount. I don't, I don't even remember the numbers anymore, but, but, um, I think you're more up to date on the yeah, numbers I now because <laughs> you read the book more recently. I haven't looked at the book in years at this point, but, um, uh, yeah. And it was, it was so strange, but like, I was like, if this is real, this could make us a lot of money, you know, because there was a, you like the, they were being sold at double to triple the, the, the retail price on eBay because they were all sold out. And the, the thing that made us think it was real is, was that, you know, it was, uh, well, we eventually broke through a few like, uh, middlemen through levels and Ephraim was very good at this. You know, he could like talk on the phone and like just talk the guy's ear off and then get him to refer him to his source and get him to refer him to his source, which was unbelievable. I mean, he's very, very talented at that. And um, eventually we got to the source and it was actually a pretty big like electronics distribution company. Like we got, you know, emails from these people, you know, at, I forgot the name of the company, but, but they were like, it wasn't, it, they were, it was like a company that nobody actually knows their name, but like it's a B2B comp because it's a B2B company. They're mm -hmm. supplying like electronic parts to like the big other big companies, but it was like a multi-billion dollar company. So it wasn't like they're was like around. mafia trying to sell. Them. Yes, exactly. Um, and they wanted some, some like, I think they wanted like $20 million in, you know, Ephraim only had two. So, you know, we tried to line up, you know, a, a venture fund, you know, uh, it was a hedge fund, actually a hedge fund to float us the other 18 million. But the hedge fund eventually declined just saying, you know, it just didn't smell right. You know, there was just something weird about the deal. And they were just like, we don't know what it is. It seems all legit. You know, the, the payment terms, you know, they were willing to take a letter of credit so they wouldn't get paid until the goods were delivered and all that. So it seemed like it was a relatively safe deal. But the hedge fund was just like, it just doesn't smell right. So we'll pass. And so the deal fell through because we just didn't have the, you know, $18 million to uh, buy 100,000 Xboxes. So if you had yeah. 100,000 Xboxes, yeah. what was the plan? To individually list all of them on eBay? No. Okay. So we we actually had contacted buyers from Walmart and Target and the major retailers, and they were ready to go. Really? Yeah. And they were like willing to, they were willing to pay the retail price for them at the time. And they were willing because they were going to make zero money on this because they, because it was such a hot, hot item. They it's were willing games and other things. Yeah. Well, because they call it a loss leader, you know, they'll be like, Hey, we've got the Xboxes 
come in a lot of people come in the store and then they buy other things like games or chargers or controllers or other stuff that target sells you know so yeah so we would have we would have made if that deal had gone through we we would have made like 20 million in profit hey it's kaylee cuoco for priceline ready to go to your happy place for a happy price well why didn't you say so just download the priceline app right now and save up to 60 percent on hotels so whether it's cousin kevin's kazoo concert in kansas city go kevin or becky's bachelorette bash in bermuda you never have to miss a trip ever again so download the priceline app today your savings are waiting Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Yeah. Wow, that's yeah. that's bizarre, yeah. man. Yeah. Um, and then, <clears throat> so what was the biggest? So every day at the point where you guys start working together, that deal falls through. Are you guys just like showing up together, like self, like making your own schedule? Like we're mm. gonna get up every single day and and start just scouring this website to try mm. to find deals. Yeah, like living in his apartment with him, yeah, and sleeping there and yeah. waking up. Yeah. Daybreak. So after the Xbox deal fell through, he's like, "Let's just do the business I know that I know yeah. we can make money on. I've been making money on." Uh, so. Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, he starts showing me, you know, how FedBizOps works, the website, and, you know, starts teaching me about all the, you know, the types of guns and stuff that he specializes in. And uh, the the idea was that I, I would actually go after other types because he already knew the gun market, but uh, we knew that the fuel market was very big. Energy is very big. So I started going for fuel deals. Um, and my first contract that I actually got with the federal government myself was for 50,000 gallons of propane to a air base in Wyoming. Um, and uh, yeah, it was, it was a very intense, like, cause he, he you know, one thing I'll, I'll give Ephraim is that he, um, he was, he was obsessed, you know, he was had a, a like a, an obsessive work ethic, you know, like he would think of nothing other than money the entire day. And like, he, he was literally obsessed. Like we'd wake up and he, the second he wakes up, He's like looking at Fed Biz Ops, like over breakfast, you know, before he's like, you know, he's like looking at it, you know, like on his laptop on on the toilet. You know what I mean? Like that's all he would do. And, you know, while he's eating, you know, while he's talking, he he even told me, he bragged to me that he would, that he loved taking uh, calls from federal contractors while he was like having sex with his girlfriend. You know, that like he just loved doing it. I don't know why his girlfriend hated it, obviously, you know, but like he would like, you know, while having sex with her, like he'd get a call, he'd be like, baby, baby, I got to take this. I got to take this, but keep on going. <laughs> you know, and he would actually talk to. It's to like he like, really modeled himself after Nick Cage. Yeah, exactly. No, he, he loved Nick Cage. He loved Nick Cage and Scarface. Yeah. Yeah. It's so fucking. Yeah. Did you ever just think to yourself mm. watching him being so obsessed mm. over money 24 seven? Like what? Like mm. what? Why? Why was he like this? Was yeah. it was it nature, nurture? What was it? Right. So it, I thought about it a lot because you know I'm not like that. Right. You know, I mean, it's rare. Yeah, people are like yeah. That, almost right? nobody is. Uh, don't get me wrong. I like money as much as most people. Right. And you know I've always been entrepreneurial, and you know I I'm, I am you know motivated, and I've worked on my own businesses. But the level of obsession that he had was beyond anything I'd ever seen even to this day, I've never seen anyone like that, you know, and it wasn't healthy. Like it, and it no. wasn't, didn't, and it wasn't fun. You know, it was actually very unpleasant. Um, you know, working with him was, I mean, I'm sure being him was very unpleasant, but working with him was very unpleasant just by extension because, um, 
you know, he like he expected everyone else to be as obsessed as he was, you know, and he'd get like upset if like, you know, you weren't willing to drop everything in your life to chase this, you know, deal that had a tiny chance of like, you know, completing, you know what I mean? And it's like, I have other parts of my life I'm interested in too. It's, this is not the only thing I want to do, you know, so I'm not willing to work literally, you know, 16 hours a day all the time. Now I did, um, especially in the beginning and especially when we won our big contract later, the Afghan contract, because I had to, um, so I was willing to do it if necessary, but it, like, I didn't want it to be like a 24, seven, 365, you know, day thing because, uh, you know, I wanted to live life as well. So yeah, it was, it was, um, it, it was definitely unique, you know, to, to did put you it ever mildly. ask him like, how did you get like this? <laughs> um, did he have a really, really, did he have a bad childhood? So, so his family is very interesting. Um, his 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 grandfather is a billionaire um and his grandfather is this uh iranian jew who who you know like grew up in iran and i forgot what year he moved to the united states but he's you know like in his adult life moved to the united states and became his grandfather became a slumlord uh in in uh la owns a lot of low income uh housing that's why his uncle who's his grandfather's son uh, owns a pawn shop in South Central LA because it's one of his father's properties. So he, now his grandfather is an interesting character, um, even though he's like a billionaire. Uh, and I think, he, you know, he had like, I think it was eight or nine children with his wife. Um, uh, they, after like something like 40 years of marriage or something, they ended up getting divorced. And it turned out that he had never married her legally they just married like religiously. So she, she wasn't didn't know either. She didn't know or, she, you know, she didn't think of it. I, I don't know the exact story, but like, but because of that, he tried to give her zero, you know, he was a billionaire and he tried to give her zero dollars. Right. He thought about this yeah. when they got married. Yeah, exactly. And so she sued him. And I think it was like the largest alimony case in history. Um, uh, I don't know what the what it ended up being, you know, how it ended up shaking out. But I, I know it became it got into the newspapers that it like she was suing him for like seven hundred million dollars. Uh, so that's like his family, you know, and his his uncle is also like, you know, that he worked with, you know, like obsessed with, you know, like an obsessive with money. And mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I'm, I'm not going to. I know his. I know some of his family, and some of his family are very nice. Like his dad is like a real sweetheart. His brothers are great. You know, really? like yeah, and they're like very different from him. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's odd that yeah. he. You know, it's not like they're all like that. You know, um, you know, uh, but um, it, it was just like I guess that gene or something. You know, like his his, his grandfather, his uncle, him. You know, it's just like certain. Certain people are just like have that, uh, you know. So his upbringing, his upbringing wasn't yeah. much different than his siblings. I mean, I would assume so. He was the oldest, mm -hmm. so you know, like, um, you know, I, I don't know, you know, how that affected him differently. But um, it's fascinating. I think about yeah. that all the time. How yeah. how people? Because I know a few people similar that a lot that are like that, mm -hmm. and I always wonder. A lot of them had really rough childhoods. Yeah, yeah. Um. <clears throat> so I I mentioned to you. Uh, before mm -hmm. that uh a, a one of my guests on here met mm -hmm. him in prison 
met, yeah, that's right. met Ephraim in prison. Yeah. And Ephraim convinced him to write his life story. Right. He wrote the life story. Ephraim mm-hmm. got out with it and mm-hmm. used that to sue Warner Brothers. Right. For, for right. the movie War Dogs. Right. Right. Matt Cox, yeah. And Matt Cox, yeah. yeah. One of the, <laughs> the yeah. first thing, when I asked Matt, I'm like, how, because, you know, I asked Matt, I'm like, how accurate is War Dogs to to the story? He goes, well, he goes, the story's about pack house. He goes, the story is not really about Ephraim. Ephraim's just a character, but for some reason, everyone just remembers Ephraim because of his crazy personality. Sure, sure. Um, but he said, I said, well, how accurate was Jonah Hill's portrayal of Ephraim? He goes, he said, he made him way too cuddly and nice. I agree with him 100%. That's ex- <laughs> that's exactly right. Everyone who knows Ephraim will he, say that. He said yeah. that the, the yeah. Ephraim in War Dogs was a teddy bear compared to the real Ephraim. Absolutely. He's absolutely right. They they toned him down. The, the funny thing is everyone's like, oh, was he as, is he as crazy as, you know, in the movie? I'm like, he was way crazier than in the movie mm-hmm. and way of a less nice person than in the movie. Right. Like in the movie, he's kind of charming and... And, you know, as he says, like, it's kind of like a teddy bear. Jonah really softens his care, his real yeah. life character a lot, a lot. Yeah. Um, makes him a lot more likable. They did that on purpose. Actually, the screenwriter told, so the screenwriter of War Dogs, uh, um, Stephen Chin, uh, he came when they first started writing the screenplay, he came to Miami and like, uh, met with me for like a week and, you know, recorded, you know, interviewed me, recorded the conversations. And he told me while he was writing the screenplay, he's like, look, I'm going to have to tone down Ephraim, you know, you know, and he's like, because we need to make him likable to the audience. No one's going to want to spend an hour and a half in the theater. Yeah. I mean, that's how Hollywood works. You know, you need to have a certain formula Mm -hmm. uh, so that it appeals to the mass, uh, you know, uh, to most people in, in, you know, the population. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they had to add a certain amount of uh, action, you know, uh, because people like action, they have to have a certain amount of comedy and they have to have a certain amount of like relationship drama, you know, for the girls who they're, you know, are getting dragged to the, to the movie by their boyfriends, you know? So, you know, so for example, like the relationship drama in the movie, uh, they have, um, you know, uh, me, you know, like lying to my girlfriend about being an arms dealer and she gets super mad and, you know, like dumps me and like, that was like, you know, big relationship drama moment never happened. Right. My girlfriend knew about the whole thing the whole time. She was totally cool with it. She just wanted me to be making money. We just had a child together, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, but they made that up because they needed they needed to check that box of relationship drama in a movie in order, you know, to appeal to the most uh, to the biggest audience. Right. Yeah. Right. Another another funny thing yeah. Matt told me was uh, <clears throat> one of the most memorable quotes he has from him mm-hmm. when he was writing the, the uh, life story, the manuscript. Yeah. He said they were sitting in the cell together and he was telling him some of the stories and how he dealt with people. Yeah. And Matt said, he's like, you can't just burn every bridge, Ephraim. He goes, yeah. and Ephraim's response was, there's plenty of bridges, bro. That sounds like him exactly. And that's how he acts. So he burns every bridge he ever has, you know, like, like after he screwed me, you know, out of the deal, uh, there were someone took my place and then he screwed him and mm. then someone took his place and then he screwed him and like on and on and on, like every person he's ever worked with that I know of anyway, uh, you know, has ended on a very bad note, you know, and like, it feels like he's been cheated by Ephraim. Right. You know, that's just how he works. Yeah. So when they started production on the movie, was it, yeah. was that right after the Rolling Stone article came out, they started doing that or, or how did it come about? How did they contact you initially and how right. much, how much involvement did you have in the production? Right. So the, so the Rolling Stone article came out in 2011. 
um, because uh, they, so the story uh, actually takes place 2006, 2007, <clears throat> 2008. Um, uh, but uh, so I left uh, AEY, the company, you know, that we were working under uh, together, Ephraim's company. Uh, I left in July of 2007. You know, he, he pretty much informed me that he didn't want to, didn't feel I deserved the money that we had agreed that he would pay me. And I was like, well, then I'm, I'll see you in court. And, um, and so I left. Uh, and then in uh, like March of 2008, the New York Times published uh, their fateful front page article, which was not very flattering about us. And that caused the U.S. Army to cancel the contract. And and uh and you know put us in and the justice department decided to suddenly charge us uh with you know with uh fraud and so that created a huge um a huge political scandal like like uh congress wanted us to testify and they wanted us to testify in front of congress and our lawyers told them well you know they're going to plead the fifth the whole time because there's a criminal investigation and um so then they decided not to have us you know, but they still like it's on their C-SPAN clips on YouTube about them talking about us. It's really weird. Um, but uh, that got the attention of Rolling Stone. Rolling Stone wanted to write a, a feature length article about us. Um, uh, but, you know, our lawyers told us we can, you know, speak to uh, to reporters. So the reporter, Guy Lawson, who ended up writing the book, yeah. uh, he contacted my lawyer and told him, you know, uh, I can... Like, what if I guarantee you that I won't publish anything until you give me permission, you know, until like the legal jeopardy has right. been done. And my lawyer said, well, if you, you know, if we have that agreement, then then you could interview, you know, David. And so we made that agreement. And uh, he also made an agreement with Ephraim and Ephraim gave him, I think, one or two interviews and then decided that he wanted to do his own thing, like write his own book. Um, him and Matt Cox. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which he ended up doing. Exactly. Uh, so. Uh, so Guy interviewed me, interviewed Ephraim, he interviewed a few of the other people involved in the story. And then he sat on the story to his credit for three years, uh, while our legal issues were resolved. It took three years for all that to be resolved. Uh, but by 2011, um, you know, I was already off. I had been sentenced to seven months probation, got very lucky, you know, avoided prison. But, um, uh, after that was over, uh, the Rolling Stone article, was published and that got the attention of um of uh, todd phillips and at the time he was in the middle of directing uh, hangover 2 and he thought this was an amazing story uh and you know right up his alley so he optioned the story uh you know from Guy. uh he optioned the article and he optioned my life rights they call it now he didn't have to option my life rights the way the the um the way the uh, uh, copyright or uh, the way the laws work in the United States is that if your name appears in any public newspaper or like publication, anyone can make a movie with your name in it and they can make up anything they want about you. First Amendment, free speech, right? Really? Yeah, yeah. They, they don't have to pay you a penny. They could say anything they want. You have no control, <clears throat> um, you know, because you are considered a public figure if your name appears in the, in the paper. So, you know, to his credit, uh, he didn't have to give me a penny or, you know, be a, you know, at all, uh, you know, have me involved, but he wanted me to be involved because he wanted it to be a bit more authentic. So, so they bought my life rights. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and 
because of that, I consulted on the movie. Uh, they, um, uh, Steve, um, uh, Stephen Chin, uh, the screenwriter came to Miami and interviewed me for a bit. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, he would call me up occasionally while working on the screenplay to get various details and ask me for more details on like various stories and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, I had zero control over the script. You know, they didn't ask my permission for anything. They did send me drafts just to get my opinion on it. And I gave them my opinion, but like they made the movie that they wanted to make. And, right. You know, and changed it however they wanted. Were yeah. you involved in any of the yeah. filming or anything like that? Did you meet any so, of the, the did the act? I know sometimes actors like to meet the characters. And yeah, like, yeah. So I met Todd, the director, Todd Phillips. I met him early before they started filming. He wanted to meet me, and you know, he came to. He was scouting locations in Miami, and so he took me out for a drink. It was cool to meet him. Um, and then when uh, so and he wanted me to to have a cameo in the movie. So I have I have a cameo in the movie. I'm like playing guitar and singing uh, in the old folks' home, you know, while Miles Teller, who's playing me, is trying to sell bed sheets, you like know. Tarantino, to, yeah, yeah. And um, and so I was I went to L.A. to shoot that that scene, and so I met um, I met Miles there, um, and uh, then when they were filming in Miami, they invited me on the set a few times. So I met Jonah Hill and Anna Darmas, and you know. Uh, the people who were filming in my did Jonah ever meet yeah. with Ephraim? Uh, he didn't. No. Yeah, I don't think I. I, I don't. I'm not sure if it, who's whose uh, choice that was. I'm not sure if it was Ephraim didn't want to meet Jonah or Jonah didn't want to meet Ephraim. I'm not really sure, but mm -hmm. I know that they never met. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. reminds me of. Uh, yeah. It reminds me of Leo DiCaprio playing mm -hmm. that guy. I forget his name. Um, Wolf of Wall Street. I know he like met him and like spent a lot of time. Jordan with him. Belfort. Yeah, to try to yeah. like gather yeah. more information and introspect on his persona mm -hmm. to try to like portray it better. But yeah. Um, yeah. No, miles didn't do a character analysis on no, me. No, no, no. They, they just wanted, you know, uh, miles to be like, you know, the good guy, which I was happy to let him play. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I'm happy with his portrayal of me. I've got great hair in the movie. It's perfect. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. hilarious. Um, only Hollywood. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. One of the first uh, going, going reeling back again to mm -hmm. the beginning after the Xbox deal. One of the first big arms deals you did was uh, to supply the uprising in Nepal. Is that right? So we we attempted to do that, um, but or I should say, Ephraim attempted. You guys to do bid that. on that? No. Okay. So it was it. It wasn't to supply the uprising. It was actually to supply, supply the, the king, king, the king, right? Who was trying to suppress the uprising? Exactly. Uh, through one of Ephraim's contracts, uh, contacts, he, um, they were asking for like attack helicopters and things like that. And, and he tried to, you know, uh, to put together a, a save the king package as he called it. Um, but it ended up falling through. And I, I don't, I think because peace broke out, I think is what happened. So like it, there wasn't enough time to do that deal. Did you, mm. did you have any objections? Did you talk to him about that? I mean, like, dude, yeah. this is like fucked up. Yeah, I mean, it kind of bothered me to be honest, because I was like, you know, people are rebelling against a king, and you know, you know, it's uh, mm -hmm. you know, it's kind of seems to be supplying the tyrant kind of situation. And are you sure that's even legal? You know, and he's like, he's like, just, bro, just let me worry about that, okay? You just keep on working on your fuel contracts. <laughs> yeah, right. so I wasn't involved in that, and right. I didn't want to be. So yeah, yeah, so you guys weren't splitting any kind of profit. It was basically just you would take commission from the exactly. deals that you yeah. that you landed. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't, I didn't own his company, like any share in his company. He was still doing his own deals. Uh, you were just basically like your individual exactly. broker yeah. sales guy. Yeah. I was working on a commission. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, that's it's interesting. You know, his ability to value money and making deals over mm-hmm. anything else. I feel like mm-hmm. if you're going to be in that business, you have to have that mindset. Yeah. Like you you it's a weird moral compass. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I wouldn't say you have to have that mindset cuz plenty of people make a you know, a legitimate living legally and they would argue morally in that business, you know, okay. like um there there's some people who say that, you know, uh, dealing with weapons or ammunition, you know, at all is, you know, morally bad, right? You know, right. full stop, right? Mm-hmm. That's there's there's those people and I've mm-hmm. met those people and I've gotten hate from them online and all that, you know. People that just hate guns. Period. Yeah, in in general, uh, but like I you know, I don't think <clears throat> Right now, most of those people would say that, hey, you know, the people supplying with Ukraine, you know, with weapons to defend themselves from the Russians, are those people bad? I don't think so. Right. You know, yeah, I think most the same people that are saying give Ukraine more weapons. Exactly. More guns, right. Exactly. You know, because, uh, you know, a gun can kill someone. It could also defend yourself from getting killed. So it's it's a gun isn't a bad thing on its own. Mm. It's it's a tool. Right. Right. It's like nuclear energy it could be could supply power. It could make a bomb you know a knife could chop up your vegetables or chop up your neighbor you know it's a it could you know most technology is dual use and it all depends on how you use it you know that's that's the key that's interesting you know it's an interesting perspective um another thing about your story is i didn't see anybody that was involved correct me if i'm wrong but the only guy who might be questionable i'm not sure would be the Swiss arms dealer Tomet Tomet Tomei, Tomei. Yeah. But other than that, like it didn't seem like there were really any bad guys. Mm. Like you, Ephraim, the guys you were dealing with in Albania, mm-hmm. all the middlemen. I didn't really see any bad guys. I just saw people that were taking advantage of opportunities, right, to yeah. make money. Yeah, they weren't necessarily evil. Does, right. it, does that make sense? Right. Well, I mean, I don't think anyone views themselves as evil, right? And that's, right. you know, even I'm sure Hitler, you know, thought he was doing the right thing, you know, uh, you know, for his people and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, uh, um, <clears throat> I don't think very few people consider themselves <laughs> evil. Right. You right. know, but, uh, uh, yeah, I mean, it really depends on where you come down on the various uh, politics of what you're involved in. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, we were supplying um, uh, the U.S. Army and they were supplying with our weapons and ammunition uh, the <clears throat> democratically elected governments of Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, and uh, like the government of Afghanistan was fighting the Taliban. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't feel bad about that, right. you know, because I thought that as with all the problems that the that the government of Afghanistan had, and there were many, you know, lots of corruption, lots of everything, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they were way better than the Taliban. And, you know, you know, I thought that on the, on the whole, on overall, uh, it's better that for those people to be in power than the Taliban would mm-hmm. be. And as we could see now, you know, that the Taliban took over again, it's back to where it was before and it's way worse for all those people. So, um, so I think it, it, it's, 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 you know, it, it, I think looking at something as being, oh, you're doing this, this is bad, right? You know, period is, you know, life isn't like that. You know, life is complicated, you know, and there's never a, a good or a bad choice. There's often a bad or a worse choice. And you have to decide, you know, like what's the least bad 
you know, and, you know, supporting the least bad solution doesn't mean that you are bad because, because that solution is not perfect. You know, it's the world you live in now, always try to come up with a better solution, you know, and, 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 you know, and everyone ha makes their own decisions of where their limits are, you know, like I, I know a lot of people would be like, oh, just even touching that stuff, you know, or, you know, the fact that, that there may be a chance that, you know, that something could go wrong is, you know, too much responsibility. I can't take it, you know, so they won't do it. And other people are like, you know, I don't really give a shit, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, you know, once the guns are out of my hands, it's not my problem, you know? Right. So everyone has to have their own moral compass of like, what they're comfortable with. And, uh, you know, I, I, I won't say that I was always comfortable in everything that I experienced in that business. Um, there were definitely some things that made me uncomfortable and, uh, made me feel bad about, you know, being involved in it. But, um, uh, you know, I tried to remain true to my values as much as I could. Who was Heinrich Tomei? Can you explain to people yeah. listening who, who that was right. and what was his specific relationship to the United States? Right. So Heinrich Tomei, or Henry, as most people called him, uh, was a Swiss arms dealer. Uh, in the movie, he's played by Bradley Cooper, um, who made no attempt to make a Swiss accent. It sounds like an American in the movie, but whatever. I can't even uh, imagine what a Swiss accent would sound like. It's kind of like a, uh, like a very... like like uh, like a softer german accent okay yeah well i mean switzerland you know they speak uh uh, uh german uh, italian french and i forgot the fourth language they have like four languages they speak okay. so it really depends on which swiss person you talk mm. to well their okay. accent will change <laughs> uh depending on like what language they grew up with but i believe that most swiss people speak a form of german okay um, uh, though it's like a, a little different than the German German, you know, so they sound a little different, but, um, but yeah, but Henry, uh, he, he also didn't look like Bradley Cooper, he was, <laughs> you know, Bradley had these like really thick glasses and he looked like he was always hung over and, and the character was great. I'm not, not bashing Bradley. He's a great actor, you know, and he made his own version of the character and he did that on purpose and, mm -hmm. you know, but, uh, but yeah, but not based on the real guy, <laughs> the real guy, he was much more along the lines of a Swiss banker. Did, you know, how many times did you interact with him? Uh, several times. Um, I met him, met him in Vegas, like in the movie, but not the way they portray it. Um, <laughs> yeah, we didn't just bump into him randomly. We were actually introduced to him by, uh, by, by, uh, the Ralph character in the movie, um, who was not a Jewish guy who owned dry cleaners, actually a Mormon guy who owned machine gun factories. His name was Ralph though. Oh, but, tomato, uh, tomato. Yeah, exactly. It changed the character a little bit, but, uh, so Ralph had been doing business with Henry for a long time and he introduced us to him. And so we met him in Vegas. I think the first time we met him in Paris another time. And we talked to him on the phone a lot because we were, he was a, one of the best in the business like he had connections everywhere you know like especially in eastern europe the balkans that was like his specialty which is how he uh you know hooked us up with the albanian deal you know that ended up being our downfall mm -hmm. you know because he had such good connections there and, and what <clears throat> what was his relationship to the u.s at that time right so he'd been in business like i think he was like ephraim like since he was 18 years old and he oh, was wow. like in his 40s at the time so he'd been doing this business for more than 20 years and uh i know that 
he got, I believe he was on some like Amnesty International report for supplying some dictators in Africa. So he was, you know, on like a State Department watch list. Uh, it wasn't illegal for us to do business with him. I, I do know that. Mm -hmm. But I don't think he would be allowed to do business directly with the United States. Mm -hmm. So um, so that's why, you know, he needed us, you know, to be his kind of like go between to, mm -hmm. to sell to the United States. Um, and he was an incredible source, you know, he got, he had, you know, uh, connections with everybody, as I said, uh, and at incredible prices. So it gave us a competitive advantage, mm -hmm. uh, which was one of the reasons why, why we won a lot of the contracts. In hindsight, do yeah. you think the U S government was aware they were using you guys as a proxy to deal with him? They definitely knew because we actually put it in the paperwork, you know, uh, when, before, um, before uh, uh, giving us the contract, um, they actually asked us to list sources of supply, and he was one of them. Oh, <laughs> so, shit. so yeah, so they knew it. we weren't hiding it. Um, so yeah, but they, I either they didn't check or they didn't care. I'm not sure which one that that was, but mm -hmm. they, but yeah, they they could have known if they looked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, overall, it seems like. Um, the United States government was intentionally turning a blind eye to yeah. who you were dealing with because you guys essentially were, well, I, I don't want, I don't want to get too far ahead yeah. of, of the story. Right. Um, so in 2006, when the U S government decided to arm mm -hmm. the Afghans to fight the Taliban, mm -hmm. um, they originally intended to use a Russian arms company. Yeah. Yeah. Russia Baron. Yeah. And that was made public mm -hmm. that they were going to do that. Yeah. And, uh, they actually, so they, they sent, I think that they sent like a fax cause they still use faxes, uh, governments in general, mm -hmm. but, um, but particularly Eastern Europe, they, I don't, you know, they're just, um, they love fax. Um, so they, <laughs> they sent a Russell Baron a fax, like requesting like the list of munitions. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and the Russians thought it was a joke because it was such enormous quantities. They were like, this is not real. And I think they like laughed it off. And then, you know, the State Department had to contact them a few times to say, no, 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 it's not a joke. We really want to buy this stuff. And if I recall correctly, what happened was at some point, uh, the Russians got on the blacklist because they were supplying nuclear technology to the Iranians. Mm. And so because they got on a blacklist, now the U.S. couldn't buy from them legally anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had to put it out for open bid to buy from other sources. Because the Russians were the only ones who could supply the entire contract, you know, every single, you know. In one fell swoop. Yeah, in one swoop, a single source, <laughs> right? Um, because they have massive stockpiles, as, as I mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, but there's lots of stockpiles spread out around all the other Warsaw Pact countries as well, you know, uh, you know the Balkans, uh, Eastern Europe. Uh, but. You, not a single country could supply all that. So they needed someone like a logistics aggregator, I guess you could call us, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's someone to, uh, they didn't want to deal with all these different actors, um, you know, these different suppliers. So they wanted uh, to deal with a single source. So what they did is they put the entire thing up for, con uh, up for contract and asked us, you know, asked the, the middlemen uh, in the business to put together a package for them. And so we went uh, and, 
got quotes from pretty much every country that we could think of that may have these items that we could legally buy from and put together the best uh, combination of, you know, items of, you know, what it costs and, you know, what the quality was and where it was, uh, depending on like, you know, how much the logistics would cost to ship it to Afghanistan. So when we combined all that together, uh, you know, we had a very long spreadsheet mm-hmm. um, and we, we, uh, we got the be- the most competitive price, which is by far, which was why we uh, we won the contract. How did the three hundred million dollar Afghanistan deal come about? What was that conversation like when you first learned about it? So I was uh, I first learned about it. I was driving home to uh, have dinner with my girlfriend, and Ephraim calls me up, and he's like, he's like, dude, dude, you got to get to the office right now, right now, right now. I'm like, I'm about to have go have dinner. I already made plans, you know. He's like, fuck that, fuck that. You want to get rich, or you want to go, you know, like you want to like you know hang out with your girlfriend. Your girlfriend will be sucking your dick after you have much money you're about to make, you know. And you know, I'm like, I'm like, this could wait till tomorrow. It's not an emergency, you know. Just tell me, all right. Just tell me over the phone. He's like, he's like, fine, fine. I can't believe you're you're not serious about this, you know. It's like everything, like you know, it was like everything revolved around like. Um, and so he's like, he's like, he's like, uh, I just saw this massive contract and it's all the kind of stuff that we've been dealing with already. So we've got great connections for it. This is going to be the biggest thing we've ever done, you know, um, you know, we'll, and you know, he's like, it's all, it's all Warsaw packed stuff. So, um, you know, it, the U S can't get it, you know, they don't manufacture it in the United States. They're going to need to go through brokers, you know, like us and, you know, they're going to need to find suppliers and we already have all the past performance for all this stuff because we've already delivered in much smaller quantities, you know, these type of, uh, munitions. Uh, so he was super excited. And, uh, then we, you know, uh, uh, usually we had a deal, um, that we would split, you know, the deals that I worked on 50, 50, um, uh, you know, because he would like put up the money and he would do the final negotiations and we would do the contract under his company and all that. And I would do all the work. And that was kind of like our deal. Um, and he's like, you know, usually we do 50 50, but for this, uh, you know, I, uh, I already got a lot of these contacts, you know, this is kind of my bread and butter. So we'll do 75 25. But he's like, but don't worry, this, this contract's so huge, you're going to make millions off this. I'm like, okay, fine. You know, I'm good with it. Whatever. Did you say not- initially how big it was? Uh, so we had no idea, oh, okay. you know, like what the final number was going to be because we hadn't gotten prices on it. He just saw the quantities of of okay. like munitions that they were asking. And it was like the first item was like 100 million rounds of like AK-47 ammo, 7.62 by 39. There was like 100,000 grenades. You know what I mean? Like the, there's like millions and millions and tens of millions of dollars at minimum, you know. Um, you know, we knew like right away, these, these quantities, we'd never seen them before. It's like literally like 20 times bigger than anything we'd ever seen. Um, and that was like bigger than the biggest things we've seen. So it was massive. Um, and so we started, you know, he started contacting all, all the people that he, you know, already knew. And, you know, my job was to pretty much scour the internet and the world and find any, uh, sources of supply that he had missed, you know, in his few years of doing this. So, you know, for these types of items. So he gave me a list of, you know, all the people he was already talking to. He's like, don't talk to these people. These are my contacts. Anyone else, you know, is fair game. Go for it. So, you know, I spent probably like a month and a half. I don't remember the exact time frame, but of, you know, just like 
all day, you know, I would go through these massive lists of like armed suppliers that there were these directories online. Half of the entries were like, you know, old and not relevant anymore. And the phone numbers didn't go anywhere, you know, and most of them didn't have email addresses. You have to call up and then they don't speak English and you have to, you know, find the one guy in the factory that speaks English and his English is terrible. And you, then he gives you a, like a fax number. You have to fax them what you want. And then they like, you know, it's like a whole rigmarole, you know, they're not, built for doing business really because these are like all um uh the remnant where we were, we were finding uh you know uh, uh these items were only made in the warsaw pack countries because it was all warsaw packed munitions it was mm. it was all munitions it wasn't weapons this contract it was uh the idea was to supply the afghan army and police for like the next 30 years you know that was like the idea um because uh, this was the last year of bush's presidency he thought that um, the next president might be a Democrat, which he was right, you know, Obama. But he thought that the next president would pull out of Afghanistan immediately and leave the Afghans high and dry, which he was wrong. I mean, you know, it took until right. 2020 uh, or was it 21, 2021 before we pulled out. Mm. Um, so Bush wanted to arm the Afghans with as much stuff as possible before he left office. So that's why they did this massive contract. Um, so this contract was just for munitions. So everything that was used in the weapons, so like everything from like pistol ammo to like anti-aircraft rockets and like tank shells and, uh, and, uh, mortar shells and, and, you know, big things, grenades, you know, big things like that. So, um, but it was all Warsaw packed because that's what the Afghans, uh, you know, as for the people who don't know, there's two major weapon systems in the world. There's the NATO standard, which is what the United States and the West uses, you know, like the M16. And then there's the Warsaw pack standard, which is what, uh, the Eastern Europeans, the former Soviet republics, uh, use like the AK-47. And, uh, you know, they're different like bullet sizes. You can't like put the bullets of one gun into a different gun because, you know, to the other standard because it won't fit. So um, the United States doesn't manufacture Warsaw Pact stuff mostly. So and they needed massive quantities. So the only place that they were going to make this was in the former Soviet republics. And uh, a lot of the Soviet republics had these really old, you know, they've been building these stockpiles up during the Cold War. Um you know, which is where we'd already been supplying similar things to Iraq, to the uh, to the U.S. Army in Iraq, who was supplying the Iraqi army because the Iraqis and the Afghans were both trained in, in the Soviet standard. Okay. So, you know, that's why they needed that, because uh, the Iraqis were, were trained with AK-47s, not with M-16s. Um, so that was the reason for that wanting was, IMO. Okay. Yes, and, and there's a good reason for that, because the AK-47 is designed for uh, soldiers with a lot less training. Uh, okay. You know, the AK-47, the, the famous example is the AK-47 is kind of like your Corolla, you know, like it doesn't have the greatest performance, but it lasts forever. You barely need to maintain it mm -hmm. and it works, right. you know, you can, you can bury it in the mud. Exactly. Pull it out and it works it's perfectly. famous for that. Yeah. Uh, the M16 is like a Ferrari, you know. It works amazing, but it's it's finicky. You have to maintain it. It breaks easily. Mm. You really know how to use it. You have to know how to use it and practice with it and all that stuff. You know, so you have to be much higher level of training to use uh, NATO uh, weapons in general. It's uh, it goes to the philosophy of how the West and the East uh, treat their military structures. You know, the the um, the Soviet Union, you know, under Stalin, uh, their whole philosophy was just quantity over quality. You know, like they, um, uh, I remember seeing some documentary about like the tanks that they built. I think it was the T-72s. I forgot which, which tank, but like 
they had kept on having the bolts like falling out of the tank treads. So they did is they put, they installed this like little piece of wedge of metal, like along where the bolts would pass by so that, you know, like on an angle. So as the bolts, as they're slipping out of the tank tread, they would get knocked back into the tra- tank tread as it would pass this like little wedge so that they wouldn't have to secure the bolts on the, on the tracks. Right. So that's kind of how the, the, the Soviets, you know, uh, uh, built their, that was like their general philosophy, but because they kind of, uh, you know, they, they built it cheap, they were able to build massive amounts and they were able to overwhelm the Germans in mm-hmm. world war two. And that's kind of continued. So they, they have much lower levels of training of their soldiers, uh, than the West does. Um, but they have more of them and they have, you know, so, uh, um, you know, it, it's like a less sophisticated, but it's easier to use. So, uh, and it's cheaper. So the United States, um, you know, decided to supply Warsaw Pact weapons, uh, because, you know, one, the people they're supplying, the Afghans and the Iraqis already were trained in those weapons, but also bonus much cheaper, right. you know, than Western weapons. Uh, and the United States wanted to spend as little as possible, you know, in, in this endeavor. So, uh, so they put out this contract for all the munitions, um, and uh, we, you know, scoured the internet. We got all the prices, um, uh, and uh, eventually, it took us a few months to gather it all together and to make our very complex spreadsheets. Uh, you know, which took into account, uh, you know, the cost of the goods, where it was located, how much it would cost us to transport, you know, to Afghanistan, because Afghanistan is a lock, landlocked country. And it's surrounded by unfriendly countries like uh, Pakistan, which is very unstable. You know, then there's the central, you know, um, uh, Asian countries. And so you need to really fly everything in there. You can't drive it because it's at high risk of uh, of getting, uh, you know, hijacked um, if you have a truck convoy going from like the port of Karachi into Kabul. It's not a very safe route. Um, you know, there's a lot of warlords over there who would love to get their hands on a huge convoy of weapons. So, you, you know, the, you have to fly it now flying is, is way more expensive than shipping, you know, like minimum four or five times more expensive, depending on the route. Um, usually a lot more, but, um, uh, so because of the, the, we had to fly everything we, you know, logistics was a major factor in the cost. Uh, so we had to, you know, build these complex spreadsheets of like how much it would cost, you know, per volume, per weight to fly it into Afghanistan from various locations. And after we had it all figured out and uh, we got our final price, Ephraim decided to put um, uh, a 9% profit margin on it for us because he figured that everyone else will probably do 10 <laughs> so that we should do nine, you know, just to undercut them. And uh, it turned out that he had, you know, way lowballed it. There's uh, a famous scene in the movie where we find out, you know, about by how much it was. That's a real number. I think it was. 53. I think that's a, that, that scene's actually in the trailer too. Yes, it's in the trailer. That's right. Um, so that's it. Didn't happen like that. You know, we did find out how that we had lowballed it by about fifty-two or fifty-three million dollars. Uh, but we found it out over the phone, which obviously makes for a, a less exciting scene on film. Uh, that scene did happen uh, where, uh, you know, it, it wasn't me, actually. It was Ephraim and Ralph went to Rock Island Arsenal uh, to meet with all the, uh, the the government contracting officers, uh, you know, before they gave us the contract. So they, they met Ephraim in person before giving him that contract. 
he brought Ralph because Ralph is an older gentleman. So he figured because he's so young, he needed like an older guy to, you know, give, make them feel a little bit more secure. Mm. Um, so yeah, we, we submitted our bid and then like a few months later, we, we didn't hear anything for a few months. And then they suddenly came to us. They're like, you're in the final uh, stages. We need to do like, like, I think it was like four or five different types of audits you know, they wanted to look at our books they wanted to look at you know like um you know like our accounting system you know they they sent like a team of people to our office to you know to check us out you know they they did due diligence on us how long yeah how long from the point where you submitted the bid mm. well actually first of all yeah working on the bid yeah it took you how long to work on that to build that bid so if i recall correctly the initial work was about one and a half months okay. something of like intense work like i was okay. working all night you know because i was always trying to get people on the phone and they're in like different time zones mm -hmm. and you know you have to like sometimes they'll only call you back they won't like you know everything's by phone for some people so you have to be like available at any mm -hmm. moment you know because if you miss their phone call they won't like call you back for another week or ever you know right. so it was a huge pain to deal with them and then you had yeah. to include the price of fuel yes. for air transport exactly and everything else yeah. we had to um, calculate all that so yeah so that took about a month and a half and what was the price yeah. so the final price including our nine percent profit margin so was, you, so yeah sorry to interrupt yeah, yeah so you came up with the price mm -hmm. and then of what it would cost you then you just added nine percent correct okay that's how we did it you okay. know, we figured that would be our profit margin okay uh, so including the profit margin, the entire total price, uh, was about $298 million. Okay. And it, you know, just for reference, the biggest thing that we'd ever done under AUI previously, I think was like $18 million in, in total, which, you know, Ephraim made a few million dollars from, so that's not nothing to sneeze at. You know, he made millions of dollars from that contract, that $18 million, but it was like less than 10%, you know, 7% of the, you know, this other contract. Now, did yeah. you guys, I'm sure you guys like yeah. went through this with like a, a fine tooth comb yeah. and made sure that it was, yeah. it was solid airtight mm -hmm. what was the did you email this quote did you mail the quote what was it like how did you send it and right. what was that moment like where you right. guys were like <gasps> yeah press the button right so it's interesting because most of the government quotes you just email it to them or you like <clears throat> upload a file on their website you know depending on which department you're working uh your your the contract is for you know like uh, uh, sometimes if you're selling to the state department versus the army, they have like a slightly different system, or at least they did. I mean, I don't know if they've changed now, but, um, for this particular contract, and I don't know why they did this, but they wanted everything in paper, you know, paper and CD of all things, you know, they didn't want us to like upload it to their, to the site. Mm. So we had to print out everything. It was like a massive stack of papers like that. And, you know, with all the supporting documents and, and everything and a CD where we had like spreadsheets on it, you know, certain files that they requested. And then we had to uh, overnight it to them. But Ephraim had this horrible uh, habit of always doing everything at the last second. I don't know why. It's just what he did. And so like, you know, we, we had everything done and we waited until the day, the deadline, you know, like we, if we overnighted it, it would get to them the next day. So it was like the day before was the deadline. And like, it was like four o'clock, the, the, uh, the, uh, post office is going to close at five. 
And, you know, he and he was just like, oh, should I do 9%? Should I do 8%? What if someone else is thinking 9% because everyone else is doing 10? You know, he was like, he was torn, you know, 8 or 9%, 8 or 9%. Yeah. And he just couldn't decide until it, I was like, Ephraim, you have to decide because it's like 4.30 and we're going to not bid on this if, if you keep on dawdling. And finally, he's like, fuck it, fuck it, you know, 9%. And we we put it in into the spreadsheet, printed it all out. And then it was like only 10 minutes until the post office was going to close. We get into his car and he's like, like going 60 miles an hour down residential, like, you know, <laughs> uh, streets, you know, to like, you know, skidding around corners to get to the post office because he had like only a few minutes later. You're we like running in and we like literally made it by like two minutes left, you know, before like it closed and finally like submitted it. Um, yeah. And it, it was just. I don't know why he did it. He did that for like everything. Everything was like, like at the last second, like everything's super stressed. It was just like, he kind of like lived off the stress, you know, like, mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's just was his personality. Feed, feed on the stress. Yeah. Yeah. And then, so after that, there were some signs that they were interested, right? Yeah. They, they like you were subscribing, like yeah. they were, they, uh, they were calling you, they were trying yeah. to audit the company. Yeah. And what else were they doing? So they, there were a few different audits that they had to do. So uh, first, they didn't speak to us at all for like, I think something like two months, you know? Yeah, we were like, oh, well, we probably lost, you know? That's why we didn't hear You guys anything. just kept, kept moving on. Yeah, we just we just started working on other things, you know? We're like, okay, we spent the last two months working on this huge thing, you know? It's a roller. We didn't actually, we thought it was a low chance of us winning. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. We didn't think that we had a high chance. We were like you know, everybody in the industry is going for this contract, mm -hmm. including like the biggest players like General Dynamics, multi-billion dollar company, ATK, you know, like these are like publicly listed companies. They have like a department with like a hundred people who are doing what we're doing, you know, just two guys, you know? So uh, we're like, you know, they, these guys have been doing this business for decades and they have like huge teams of people. They're probably going to beat us, but we technically um, uh, qualify to bid you know because we have the past performance so we could bid it's not like we're automatically disqualified so we have to bid you know because what if we win you know right. it's like a small chance but such a big upside so uh so we, that's why we bid on it but we didn't really expect to win we thought it was a we thought it was a small chance um and then like two months later suddenly they called us up and they're like um you know, we're, we're, do, we have to do some due diligence. Uh, you know, we're making our final decision soon. And part of that final decision, we have to do all these audits and we're like, whoa, we're like in the, in the final running, you know, like we didn't know we were, that they, that we were the number one choice or anything. We thought maybe they're like, you know, they narrowed it down to like three or five companies, you know, out of everyone who bid. And, um, and I think it was something like 30 or 40 companies bid something like that. And, um, you know, they narrowed, I think they like, we thought that they were like narrowing it down and now they had to do all this like due diligence on all the companies because it's a massive contract. They didn't usually do this. In fact, we never had this done on even the $20 million contract. They never did this. But for a $300 million contract, it's a whole other level of, of you know, homework that they that they need to do. And so they wanted, you know, as I mentioned before, they wanted to see our accounting system. Mm -hmm. They wanted to... Um, uh, you know, they wanted to see what our financials were like. They wanted to see that they, that we were able to, uh, afford to deliver on this contract because the way the U S government works is, is they, they make an order and then you deliver to them. And then 30 days later after you deliver is when they pay you, right? So you need, and most suppliers are not going to give you credit. So you need to have the money to finance 
you know, to buy the goods in order to sell it to the U.S. government and wait 30 days, uh, you know, before you get paid. Right. So, you know, having the money to, to float that deal, uh, you, you know, is critical. And so they did a financial audit of, of the company and um, uh, they did like a sourcing audit. They wanted to know where we were going to get everything. We, that's where I mentioned that, uh, you know, we listed uh, Henry mm-hmm. uh, or at least Henry's company. Um, and, uh, you know, we had to tell them where we were getting everything, what our logistics plan was, you know, they, they really wanted us to tell them how we were going to do everything. And they, they sent, uh, uh, you know, like auditors to our office. Uh, you know, we had to, um, because Ephraim had never like done his books like ever, you know, like he literally, he didn't have an accounting system at all. You know, everything was the seat of the pants. And so they wanted to see an accounting system. So he hired a, a uh, an accountant and he's like hey government wants to see an accounting system we have to build it and, he, and the guy's like what you haven't been doing your accounting like for the last two years you know and everyone's like no i just you know transfer money and get paid and you know what if, i know i'm making money but that's all that matters you know uh, and um so the, so he had to like go and backtrack on all the deals ephraim had done and input it into an accounting system so that, you know, it looked like Ephraim had a rock solid accounting system mm-hmm. that had been going back a few years, you know? Uh, so that was just like one component of it. And, you know, and then they asked him to come and meet them in person um, in Rock Island Arsenal, which is where uh, the uh, the contract was being managed out of. And that's when he took Ralph, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and met them in person. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, that's it was, they, it was they, intense. And they actually did tell him that he, uh, he underbid by 50 million. He did, but not in that scene. He, he told, <laughs> they told us over the, yeah, right. I, it was, I actually am the one who found that out because I was the one dealing with, uh, this was already after we had won the contract and we were already starting okay. to like deliver. And I was talking, I be, kind of became friendly with one of the contracting officers and, you know, I was kind of just schmoozing with him on the phone, you know, and, you know, just talking and he's like, oh, you guys, you know, you're really kicking ass. You, uh, you know, you're really saving us some money. And I'm like, oh, is that right? And he's like, yeah, yeah. You were like way cheaper than everyone else. And I'm like, really? How much? <laughs> and he's like, well, I shouldn't be telling you this, but uh, between me and you, you know, uh, you guys came in like 53 million under. I was like, oh my God. And I told Ephraim and he's like, fuck. Fucking couple of schlemiels. Yeah. <laughs> he was so pissed. He was so pissed. He's like, we could have made so much more money. Yeah. Yeah. He was so mad. what was it like? What Walk me through when you guys found out you actually had won the contract. Yeah, so um, it was, I think it was January of 2007, and uh, I was, I actually was uh, just getting home. I was still doing massage therapy occasionally. You know, I was winning some contracts here and there, but, like, I still had, like, a few, like, old-time clients, uh, and, you know, I didn't, like, I didn't know, like, how long I would be in the contracting business, and and, you know, the contracting business was, like, you like starve for months and then you get a big payday and then you starve for months and like you, you bid on like 10 different things and you lose them all, you know, and then you get one contract and it makes up for everything else. It was very unstable. And, you know, I had a kid coming, so I kind of was like keeping my other uh, businesses alive, uh, you know, while, while I was trying to get into this whole thing. Because you weren't making any money during all this from from Ephraim. Correct. Yeah. I mean, I, I did make some, I did win some contracts, but they were relatively small, you know, and Ephraim, of course, 
uh, insisted that I put all the con- the money that I made from the contracts that we had won together into financing the other contracts. So he didn't let me pull any money out, you know? So, and that was eventually how he screwed me out of everything. Uh, and I guess that was his plan. Um, you know, I was an idiot and I agreed, you know, he's like, yeah, why should I finance everything? You've got well, some, you were an idiot. You were fucking yeah. in your twenties, dude. I mean, yeah. Well, I mean, I trusted him, you yeah. know, which I shouldn't have. Yeah. So, you know, but yeah, we all live and learn, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so the, when you find, when you find out like what yeah. was going on when you right. found out. So I had just finished a massage. I was getting home, uh, just to my apartment at a little apartment, um, uh, I was driving my little Mazda protege, tiny little car. Uh, and he calls me up and he's like, uh, he's like, I've got good news and bad news. And I'm like, uh, what's the bad news? And he's like, the first task order is only 600 K task order. The way they work it is they have the, the, um, the overall contract the or the base contract. And then they have specific orders against that contract. So the whole contract is like 300 million, but then they order pieces of it like at a time. So they'll be like, okay, give me 30 million in the next three months. And then after you deliver that, they'll be like, now give me another 50 million, you know, the three months after that, you know, so it's like over the, and it was supposed to be over the course of a two year period. So legally the government wasn't required to order the entire $300 million contract. They say they were planning on it, but they weren't legally required to. The only legal requirement for them to order was the first task order that they that they give you with the award. So, you know, we were wondering, we were like, when we were discussing this, we're like, you know, this these numbers, the logistics only make sense if we have the big numbers because then you get the economies of scale. You could, you know, uh, um, you know, strike deals with the aircraft providers, you know, for, you know, large numbers of flights and get low, low uh, transportation costs. But if they only give us some, if they kind of like, uh, you know, if they turn out to change their minds on ordering these massive quantities, then we're kind of screwed because then we don't get those logistics deals, right. um, you know, those logistics discounts. And then we aren't making money because that's, you know, it's not cheap enough for us to make a profit. And so we were nervous, you know, like, what if the government kind of screws us like that? And so, you know, he's like, well, the, you know, the bad news is the first contract, the first order, the t- first task order, this they call it, is only 600K, which is very small compared to $300 million. Uh, he's like, and I'm like, well, we won the contract? And he's like, fuck yeah, we did. <laughs> <laughs> he's like we're going out to dinner right now we're having champagne and cocaine <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. yeah and he's like let's go you know he's like i'm picking you up and you know he takes me to like a, a like a an italian restaurant and like he orders like you know champagne and he's had this like little bullet you mm-hmm. know it's plastic bullet that like was filled with coke yeah that he could like you know sneak coke under and he it was he, right in the middle of the restaurant right in the middle of, he had he had his like napkin and he's like you know you know like as if he was like blowing his nose you know and he like insisted i do so i was like i'm not not really into cocaine i never was i mean i've tried it you know but yeah. like never was a big fan but like he was like insistent he's like you got to do this. We're celebrating, you know, he's like, you're drinking more champagne. You're doing more cocaine, you know, it goes a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's the perfect drug for that business. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Though, you know, it's odd because he did a lot of drugs, like different types, mm-hmm. like, and the weird thing was, is that he was functional, like almost no matter how fucked up he was, mm. like he would be blasted off his mind and then he would get a call from the government and he would speak coherently and like just blah, 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 as if he was like sober. And then like, 
he'd hang up the phone and he'd start teetering around again. It was really weird, really weird. The one, the one thing that I saw fuck him up was when he would take sleeping pills, you know, cause he had trouble sleeping. And so he too got, much Coke, you can't sleep, I guess. And also stress. I mean, mm-hmm. he'd been screwing over a lot of people and who knows, you oh, made yeah. a lot of enemies, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, I'm not going to make a judgment of what kept him up at night, mm-hmm. but uh, obviously he was comfortable enough to screw people over. So maybe it didn't keep him up at night, but, um, but he couldn't sleep. So he got sleeping pills prescribed and, you know, after he would take the sleeping pills, he was such a workaholic, he'd still try to continue working, even though he had taken sleeping pills. And sleeping pills, anyone who's taken them knows, and if you try to stay awake after you've taken sleeping pills, your brain doesn't work very well. Like you, Yeah, like it's as if you're dreaming, but you're awake, and, and your logic circuits don't really make sense. Like you start like saying things that are really weird and don't make sense. And so like I would see him you know, like get on the phone with like a contracting officer from the government and start saying things that like were like did not make sense. And... Uh, I would have to like get the phone. I'm like, Ephraim, go to sleep. <laughs> and I like, I take over. I'm like, uh, excuse me, Sarah. Uh, yeah. He's, you know, he's a little tired. He's been working real hard, you know? <laughs> so yeah. It, so that was a, the one thing that, you know, I saw, you know, really, really messed him up. Uh, but like <clears throat> Coke, alcohol, weed, uh, you know, everything else he could get his hands on, you know, he was a big fan of pretty much anything that would mess him up. He could work through all of it. That's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. One of the things that really stuck out to me in the book, especially is like waking up, ripping the volcano bong and then going to work. Yeah. yeah. Like I can't work when I'm stoned like that. Yeah. 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 Me neither. Actually. I I mean, I'm a fan of weed, you know, Mm -hmm. I'll be the first to admit it, but only when I'm like relaxed and chilling, you know, like I can't work when I'm Mm -hmm. on weed. I it's, it's, uh, um, you know, I, st- my mind wanders, you know, right. like I can't focus and, but he would take huge bong rips and just like go right to work and go on spreadsheets and s- start scanning FBO and talk to people as if he had just, you know, that's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's go back to your contract. You get the contract, champagne and cocaine. <laughs> um, yeah. now you guys have to start fulfilling the contract. And you guys realize that there is a embargo on Chinese ammunition. Right. At what point did that happen and why did that happen? Right. So while we were bidding the contract, uh, they had, you know, every time. So when, whenever they have a, a, a request for proposal, a RFP, as they call it, right. Uh, they always have the the rules of like what you have to follow in order to uh, you know to uh, meet their requirements. You know, so like for example, uh, when you're dealing with clothing, you know they have certain laws that certain percentage of the material, the textile, needs to be grown in the United States. Certain amount of the manufacturing has to be done in the United States. Could only be transported on like you know American crude vessels. You know, if depending on where it's going. You know, there's certain there's certain like a lot of like laws you know, that were, that have been built up over the years and you have to kind of navigate that when you're dealing with the government. One of the things in our, in the, the, the request for proposal for the uh, Afghan contract was that they specifically said, uh, no Chinese ammunition may be supplied uh, either directly or indirectly under this contract. Um. And the reason they put that there was because there's an arms embargo against China. There has been one since 1989, uh, since the Tiananmen Square massacre, when a bunch of Chinese students protested they wanted democracy. And uh, the Chinese government famously, like, killed a lot of them. Like, there's a very famous picture 
uh, I think called Tank Man, where there's like a line of tanks and there's a, a Chinese protester who's like standing in front of the line of tanks. Uh, that's part of the Tiananmen Square massacre. And uh, that be- that was huge worldwide news back in 1989. And uh, to punish the Chinese military for su- brutally suppressing the democratic movement, uh, the United States put an arms embargo against the Chinese military. So it's illegal for U.S. citizens to either sell or buy military equipment from the Chinese or from Chinese military companies, as they call them. Which seems silly because what did it do? We buy everything else from China. Right. Well, I guess <laughs> the idea was that we're not directly supporting the organization that that killed all these protesters, you know, like the, the Chinese okay. uh, army. Now, of course, when we're buying our, our iPhones from China, Foxconn is paying taxes to the Chinese government who's using those taxes to buy equipment exactly. for their military. So it's <clears throat> not a big thing but i guess it was a way it was a way to punish the chinese military for doing that okay uh and this is something the united states does often uh you know like as i mentioned earlier they put the russians on the blacklist for supplying the iranians with nuclear technology so you know u.s citizens can't deal with the russians uh uh, you know, for military goods. It's more like about sending a signal or something. Yes, exactly. It's, that's exactly it. Um, you know, that's, it, it it's, uh, it's like sanctions in general. You mm-hmm. know, the United States uses its economic power right. to, uh, to punish uh, organizations and countries that they want to punish without actually coming to physical violence with them. You know, it's right. like it's using it's, it's, it's more powerful. Yes. Honestly. Well, I mean, it depends. And I mean, there's nothing more pow- powerful than a, a bullet and a gun. But right. Uh, but yeah, but there but it's a good way to uh, exert influence without having to resort to violence. It's economic warfare is what mm-hmm. it is, you know, and that we're seeing that in a big way in, in, with Russia now. Right. Um, and they're going way further with Russia now than than they did with anyone, really, actually. Um, the sanctions are much more intensive uh, with the That's Russians. Funny side yeah. thing. I just heard yesterday, somebody yeah. told me that, uh, I don't know if this is true, you probably know, but mm-hmm. uh, Russia is now selling their oil to China and we're buying it from China. Uh, I know they're selling it to China and to India. I don't yeah. know that we are buying it from China. I haven't heard that. Okay. That's yeah. just what I heard. Yeah. Yeah, because that doesn't sound right okay <laughs> it sounds like it's uh because that would be technically against the sanctions you can't oh what it? yeah because you can't i mean i'm no lawyer <laughs> but my understanding is that you can't uh just use a middleman to get around the sanctions you know that's mm. you know, that defeats the purpose of the sanctions right so yeah i mean we shouldn't be doing that if that's happening it could be happening mm. i you know wouldn't be nothing surprises me right but uh but it shouldn't be happening yeah so yeah, yeah, the 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 embargo, the arms embargo on the Chinese ammunition, it was more of a political statement more than anything, right? Because yeah. the, essentially, it everything you guys were doing, which I'm sure we'll talk about, mm-hmm. um, with using that ammunition and supplying it, 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 it everything was going exactly how the government wanted it to go. Like it, it was working perfectly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so. They, the government needed the ammo, right? The government needed the ammo. The gov- government needed the ammo. That was that was their goal, right? Mm. And now when they put out the bid, they wanted to get, no, they couldn't get the ammo from the Russians because they just put them on the blacklist for the Iranian issue, right? They The Chinese have been on the blacklist since 1989. So, uh, you know, they wanted to get this ammo without violating their own sanctions, right? Without violating their own economic warfare policies, so to speak. 
Um, and so because of that, they specifically put no Chinese ammunition, either directly or indirectly, in our contract. Now, the weird thing was, was that they didn't say no Chinese ammunition that violates the embargo, right? You know, they just said none, period, right? Because there is Chinese ammunition that doesn't violate the embargo. Just like if you had bought a Chinese AK-47 or Chinese ammo in 1988 before it was illegal, while it was still legal, and you imported it into the United States, right? In 1990, after the 1989 ban, you could still sell that weapon or ammo in the United States to a third party because you had bought it when it was legal. So it remained legal, right? Right. You know, once it's outside the Chinese possession, you know, that's, uh, it doesn't benefit them economically, you know, by purchasing that, right? Uh, Now, but it didn't mention that, right? It just said no Chinese ammo, period. So, when we discovered, and I don't, I don't know if uh, you know, it, we're skipping ahead to this, but mm-hmm. when we discovered that the ammo from Albania was Chinese originally, we we saw the dates on the manufacturing that was manufactured in the seventies, so it was way before you know the eighty nine ban, so it didn't actually violate the terms of the embargo, but because they had put uh, no Chinese ammo period it did violate the terms of our contract, if not the embargo. So okay. it was just that the army had written the contract badly is really what it was. You know, they should have put no ammunition that violates any embargoes, right? right. But they didn't do that. They just said no Chinese ammo, period. That would have helped you if that would have said that. Yeah, it would have helped us um, because then we wouldn't have had to worry about it. But when we discovered that it was uh, Chinese ammo, uh, we had to make a choice. You know, we had to decide, um, you know, we, we had two options really. Um, well, we could say, you know, we could go to the government, to the U.S. Army and say, hey, you know, we just discovered that all this ammo that we were buying from Albania <clears throat> turns out to be originally from China, but hey, but you know, it's it was in from China in the 70s while it was still legal. So just want to clarify our contract. Our contract says no Chinese ammo, but you didn't really refer to this, right? Can you please give us a, a waiver in writing to allow us to deliver this stuff? If we had done that, two things could have happened. They could have said, yeah, that makes sense. Our bad. We, we didn't mean to write the contract that badly. You know, it, it, we did mean that it should only be for stuff that was, violates the embargo. So here's a waiver and go ahead. We really need the ammo. Or they could have said something along the lines of, well, yeah, that's true. We, we wrote the contract badly, but you know, everyone, all your competitors had to bid on that contract with that limitation, right? So it's not fair to allow you to continue to deliver that contract when, you know, you bid ammo that your competitors technically couldn't because, you know, they couldn't bid that out because if, you know, we didn't know that it was Chinese ammo at the, at the time we, uh, at the time we bid it, but but, you know, like if, uh, you know, our competitors probably knew because anyone who actually knows the history of Albania knows that all their arms came from the Chinese. It's an interesting history. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you want to take a sidetrack into that. But yeah, uh, no, it's interesting. Yeah. It's, all, it's all stored in like caves and everything yeah. else because yeah, China, yeah. China manufactured everything yeah. in, like they moved everything to Albania to manufacture yeah. it there. Right. Yeah. So it's, it's a bit of a mix. So the history of Albania is uh, interesting they were run by some dictator and in during the cold war and who was like a real uh, communist true believer. And he felt that the, the Soviets 
were a bunch of corrupt pretenders and who weren't true communists. And so he pulled out of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, Albania is a tiny little country near Greece. And he thought because, you know, the Soviets don't didn't like people who pulled out of their union and they they would enforce that like they you know invaded the czech republic in the, in the early 90s i think it was or late 80s um you know so the soviets have a history of brutally repressing uh people who rebelled against them and you know uh albania knew this so he was worried the soviets would invade him and so he made and he was also worried the west would invade him because he was a communist true believer and you know it's a mortal enemy of the west so he thought he would be invaded by both the soviets and the west and he's a tiny little country you know and so he made an alliance with uh with mao with uh, with mao's china and um who he felt the Chinese were, you know, true believers as well. So he felt okay with making an alliance with them. And he got, and the Chinese were happy to have a ally in Europe because it gives them a foothold, you know, into Europe. And so they supplied him with massive amounts of military hardware uh, because he, because he was so worried about being invaded by both the Soviet Union and the West, he formulated a plan which he called Total War, where every man, woman, and child would become a soldier and fight to the death. That was his plan. And in order to support that, he built a huge network of bunkers all over Albania and filled it with with weapons and ammunition that he largely got from the Chinese. Now, the Chinese supplied him with weapons and ammunition that they made. They also supplied him with manufacturing equipment. Uh, like entire factories that he set up in Albania to manufacture his own. So, which would look identical to the stuff that was manufactured in China. So, you know, there, there was one of the issues that was argued during the court case was that you don't even know if this stuff was manufactured in China or manufactured in Albania because the Albanians had the manufacturing equipment that the Chinese gave them. Mm. So there's no way to distinguish where these bullets come from. Uh, So that was one argument, you know, in the court case. Um, but uh, uh, when we discovered that it was, you know, that it was Chinese ammo, uh, you know, we made the choice, or I should say Efren made the choice because he, he made all the final decisions, but um, uh, that he didn't want to have the risk of losing a $300 million contract. So rather than telling the U.S. Army what the situation was, um you know, and taking a risk that they may cancel the contract, he decided to hire someone to repackage the ammunition, to take it out of the boxes that had all the Chinese markings on it and put it into uh, like plastic bags to, you know, uh, protect it from like corrosion and package that into like heavy corrugated cardboard boxes. And the actually, we were planning on doing this even before we discovered it was Chinese, because at the time, which is interesting, because we, uh, at the time in 2000, early 2007, there was a huge spike in oil prices. And that spike uh, completely destroyed all our margins uh, because we had to fly everything air freight and the various, the, the majority of the cost of air freight is the fuel. So, and because the oil prices were spiking, uh, we weren't going to make any money on this. And so we, realize that these all the ammo is packaged in these heavy wooden crates and you know which is if we remove them from the wooden crates and from the metal tins that they were in we would save a lot of weight and therefore we'd be able to ship a lot more bullets per aircraft and save a lot of money on uh on um transportation and so uh so in order to do that we sent my good friend alex uh over to albania we hired him for this job 
and he was and he found a uh, um, cardboard box manufacturer uh, and uh, and the, and hired this guy to do the repackaging job. Once he got to Albania and the Albanians showed him the ammunition, that's when we discovered it was Chinese. Right. So we only discovered it was Chinese already after we had decided to repackage it. But once we discovered it was Chinese, we're like, okay, we need to repackage it anyway. But now we have to make sure that none of the the documents, which have all the Chinese markings on them, which are in, included inside the metal tins uh, with the bullets, that none of that makes it into the new packaging. So unfortunately for us, we were pretty dumb and we said all this by email. <laughs> so we left a, a very easily traceable paper trail of all our intentions and when we decided everything. What does a hundred million rounds of AK-47 ammo look like? So we fit, if I, if my, if I recall correctly, and this is a long time ago, um, about 15 years, I think it's been now. Yeah, about 15 years. Wow. Um, uh, we were shipping about 2.7 million rounds per aircraft, uh, IL-76 aircraft, and each aircraft could hold uh, 45 to 48 tons. Um, so 45, so that's about two shipping containers per aircraft. Two shipping, the, the yeah. big metal boxes you yeah, see yeah. at the Miami. At the port, the port yes, of Miami, yeah. yes, exactly. <laughs> so about two of those, two 40-foot shipping containers wow. worth into an aircraft. And, uh, and each of those was like a little under 3 million. So that's, uh, so if you do the math, it's like 3 million for two shipping containers and there was a hundred million. Uh, yeah, my math skills are not that great right now, but it's, uh, let's see, it's, it's two for three. It's a hundred million divided by 60, three. So about 180, uh, air, uh, yeah, about 180, uh, shipping containers worth. That's wild. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is totally yeah. fucking wild. Yeah. And what are the logistics involved in transporting besides the planes? Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into transporting a hundred million rounds, including yeah. hiring the people to repackage it. Right. So that was a big job because yeah. that's a lot of ammo. And how did that affect your guys's uh, margins and your guys are, because you guys initially right. didn't plan for that in the quote. Right. We didn't, but we were saving so much money on the air freight that it was it was it was actually peanuts comparatively oh, wow. yeah like we were saving i think we we struck a deal to like pay something like i think it was something like 100 grand or 200 grand to do the re entire repackaging wow 200 grand That's one or 200 grand and we were saving i think 3 or 4 million dollars in air freight costs so we were making way more money than than it was costing to repackage and so the per and also the guy who you guys hired to do the in charge of doing the repackaging yeah. ended up being a huge part of the story. Right. So so the the guy who we hired uh, to do the repackaging was the owner of a uh, box manufacturing company, which is why we hired him because we were looking for a large quantity of strong cardboard boxes to put the ammo in. And we figured, you know, he's already has a factory, so he has access to workers. So why not hire him to do the repackaging as well? Uh, his name was Costa Trubishka. Trubishka, um, yeah. Trubishka, uh, which is, I think, how they pronounce it in, in Albania. Um, uh, he, you know, he was happy to do the deal. You know, uh, he did the, you know, repackaging. Uh, but then 
uh, what happened was Ephraim, of course, could never make enough money, right? He was always trying to squeeze more profit out. No matter how much money he was making, he was always trying to get more. So he he went over to, he kept on asking the Albanians to lower the price. He was screaming. It was actually through Henry because Henry was who set that deal up for us. He kept on asking Henry, hey, you know, I need a better price. I need a better price. And Henry's like, look, I gave you the best price. You can't get a better price anywhere. You know, you already have a best price. And and Ephraim's like, I got, I need a better price. Fuel is so high and blah, 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 you know, everything he could think of. And, uh, and you know, Henry just stood firm. He's like, I can't change the price. And so Ephraim, he flies over to Albania he starts talking to Costa and Costa is like, you know, I have a friend in the military of defense of Albania. Uh, you know, I can get some information for you. And Ephraim's like, oh, I want to know what Henry is, uh, what they're getting paid for it. You know, like he wants to know what Henry's margin is. Mm-hmm. Right. So Costa <clears throat> finds out from his friend that they, the MOD is officially, uh, the ministry of defense is officially selling the ammo, the seven sixty by 39 ammo to, uh, to Henry for two cents a round. And Henry was selling it to us for four cents a round. So he was like, had like ha- like a 50% profit margin or 100%, depending on which way you calculate it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and that pissed Ephraim off. Like, you and, know, but you guys were selling it to the government for how much? Ten and a half cents a round. <laughs> ten and a half? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, we had to pay for the shipping. So right, true. the yes. shipping was, a, if I recall correctly, about three or four cents a round. So okay. we were making actually about the same amount as, as Henry was. Okay. Now, um, now, the thing is, is that one thing that, you know, we had no idea. We're sure that Henry was probably paying off some politicians in order to do this deal. Right. Albanian. Politicians. Yeah. Albanian politicians, because uh, he was actually very close with uh, the son of the prime minister. Um, uh, Sally Berisha, I think, was the prime minister's mm. name. And I forgot his son's name. But uh, the son ended up suing me and Ephraim and Guy Lawson for defamation, by the way. Oh, really? Yeah, got tossed out of court. So, you know, so Mr. Berisha, don't sue me again. <laughs> um yeah luckily for me it got tossed out of court. it was it was ridiculous it was uh it was uh, without merit as the legal profession would say um but it was a big pain in the ass and it made simon and schuster lose all the money that they had uh made off the book oh really? yeah yeah because they had to cover the legal expenses which sucked for Good them lord but yeah but yeah even frivolous lawsuits can cost you a lot of money mm-hmm. um so anyway, uh, Henry had a close relationship with the son of the prime minister okay. and, you know, that's kind of how he got access to this, to this, to these, uh, to this, these, uh, this ammo. And, um, so we assume, well, obviously we don't know, but we assume he was paying people off. I don't know how much of that he was paying off, but I don't think he was keeping the entire two cents around for himself. He definitely wasn't. But as far as Ephraim was concerned, Henry was being a total pig. And he couldn't believe how Henry was ripping us off, you know, and it pissed him off to no end. And he wanted to get to cut Henry out of the deal, you know. And so he was like, that's it. I'm going to cut Henry out of the deal. I'm going to go to the Albanians directly and they'll deal with me direct. And, uh, you know, we're not we're cut going to cut Henry out. And so uh, Ephraim meets with the Albanians with um uh, Pinari was the guy's name who was running the organization um, who that was uh, the Albanian export company. Pinari was the head of the arms company of the of the export company. It was the a, a, a government-owned company 
that was in charge of selling any military equipment that the Albanian government wanted to sell. Okay. So Pinari was the head of that organization. Um, and he meets with Pinari and uh, he has this meeting and this meeting is in the book and that's what uh, uh, Mr. Barisha sued us over uh, was where he, uh, he meets with Pinari and, and the prime minister's son, and one uh, another character that I forgot his name, but who was a well-known like mafia guy in Albania. And yes, yeah, right. is this the story where he walks into the billion cylinder construction and there's like yes. this Wall Street decked out office in the yeah. middle of this building that's not even finished yet? Exactly, exactly. So, uh, so Ephraim, you know, realizes the kind of people he's with, and suddenly he's like, you know, usually he's a big talker, you know really loud and you know talking shit you know constantly but uh alex who was there you know told me that the second he walked in he knew he couldn't like fuck around really he was, got real quiet real fast and he's you know? what 21 at this uh, point Ephraim is 21 at this point okay. yeah yeah and uh and uh and, and they told him look we can't we're not going to give you a better price you know you can complain and scream and cry all you want but we're not going to do it we know we have the best price you know, in Europe, right? You're not going to get a better price. However, we know that you're also doing the repackaging of this ammo and that you hired this guy, this box guy, who's not part of our organization. He's just some random Albanian guy. And you're paying him a bunch of money to do this repackaging operation. So if you get rid of him and you give us the repackaging operation, pay us some money for that, you know, we'll give you a little discount on the ammo because we're making money on the repackaging operation. And Ephraim's like, deal, screw that guy. You guys are in, you know? And so he cut the box guy, uh, Costa, out of the deal. And Costa got really mad about that because he ended up with like $20,000 worth of boxes that he couldn't have anything to do with. He has to be paid for it. Ephraim just didn't take his calls, you know, refused to pay him the 20 grand, you know, because he's just like that. And, um, and, Costa got really mad and, uh, you know, and he, because he knew what was going on. He knew why we were repackaging it because, you know, we had specifically told him, make sure that no Chinese documents get into this. He knew what was going on. So, uh, so he goes and he tells the New York times what's going on. And he also tells, uh, you know, law enforcement, you know, I, I, I don't know if he told the FBI or it was customs that ended up investigating us. So I don't know who he contacted, but he contacted someone in law enforcement in the United States and uh, they started an investigation because he contacted them. And then his biggest mistake was he contacted the Albanian press and told them that there was a whole bunch of corruption with this deal, that the Albanian politicians were getting paid off, uh, you know, for this ammo deal. And I think, the reason that was, you know, a mistake on his part is because he ended up dead after that in under mysterious circumstances. Uh, he, um, like a month or two after he did that, apparently he was driving by himself in his car on a flat road in a field and suddenly had some sort of accident where he was thrown like 30 feet from his car and they found him dead like 30 feet this from is his Trubisca? car. Trubishka, yeah. Trubishka. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and they, uh, you know, they ruled it as an accident, but it was a very strange accident because there are no other cars there and it was a flat road and it was just like very, very strange. So, And also yeah. when, uh, when Ephraim first went to Albania, he asked you to Photoshop a bunch of fake that's right. Quotes, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, for his preparation, for his negotiations with the Albanians, 
he uh, he goes to me. He's like, hey, listen, I got to convince these guys to give us better pricing. So why don't you take, you know, all our, you know, uh, all the other suppliers quotes that they gave us and just change the pricing to make it look much lower so I could use it as leverage and say, hey, look, I can go to these guys, you know. Mm. And so I did that because, you know, he asked me to do that. And um yeah, not that hard. You just change a few PDF numbers. You know, you know? they called bullshit instantly. Yeah. Though um, immediately, like Pinari looked at it. He's like, "That's fake." <laughs> he didn't even look at it. He's like, I, "Don't show me that shit." You know, he's like, "I don't want to see your oh fake papers." Oh my god! You know. <laughs> so okay, once this ammo, you once you guys start repackaging the ammo, it, it all starts going smoothly at one point, right? Like yeah. you guys start everything's going as yeah. planned. Like you guys are making these deliveries to right. from you got so they're getting they're. Uh, departing from Albania yeah, and then where they're going directly to uh, Afghanistan. So most of the time they were going directly to Afghanistan. Uh, we did have uh, the, the story with the AK 40, uh, not the AK 47, the 747, right? Um, uh, the cargo 747 plane had to stop in Kyrgyzstan to refuel. And that's when it got stuck there on the tarmac. And that's because Putin got was yeah. trying to play games and yeah. he didn't like the fact that they got blacklisted. Yeah, exactly. He didn't like that they were getting blacklisted by the because they had, you know, the Russians were supposed to be making all this money. Right. And you know, it was supposed to be their deal. Right. And so they were trying to mess up the deal so that we, you know, the U.S. Army would be forced to come back to them. Mm. So they did everything they could to to stop us from delivering. So they leaned on all the Central Asian countries to to not give us overflight permits. So, uh, for example, Uzbekistan um, didn't give us an overflight permit for like a month, and like we needed to fly over Uzbekistan. And mm-hmm. then I had the idea: well, why don't we just hire the Uzbekistani national airline to do the transportation so that they're making some money on it. And then maybe they'll be willing to do it. And we did that. And the second we hired them there, suddenly we got the overflight permit. So even though the Russians leaned on them, the Russians didn't have 100% power, you know, to enforce that, you know, they were, you know, as soon as the Uzbeks were making some money out of the deal, they were happy to, you know, tell the Russians to go fuck themselves. What was it like for you to have to get all these flyover permits for yeah. all these countries in between Albania and Afghanistan? Like what it yeah. was, how far did you have to go? Mm. What did you, what was it like making these phone calls? It was a pain in the ass. <laughs> uh, but um, I mean, some countries were easy, you know, like Greece, you know, you had, we had to fly over there, you know, um, uh, you know, some countries were fine, but certain countries, especially the Central Asian countries were a lot more difficult. Um and we'd have to, uh, you know, we, at first we, you know, like we, at first we would rely on the logistics company to do it. You know, the, the air freight company, and that's mm. generally their job. You know, they're supposed to arrange all these things, but whenever they run into problems, they come back to us and they're like, Hey, you know, these guys aren't giving us an overflight permit. Is there anything you guys could do on your end? And so we, what we would do is we would call up the state department in that country you know, the consulate, the U.S. consulate, and uh, and speak to the military attache, right? That's a State Department officer whose job it is to interface with the U.S. military and the military of the country where they're stationed. So, you know, we would speak to the military attache. We'd say, you know, we're, we have a contract with the U.S. Army. We'd send them a copy of our contract so they know we're real. And, you know, like we're trying to, you know, get overflight permits over this country. Can you help us out? And they would go speak to their contacts in the military and the government of the country they're in and try to work these things out. And usually they would be able to do it. 
Um, it would take them like a week or two or three. Uh, but sometimes, you know, like in the case of Uzbekistan, they just made zero progress. And they're like, I don't know why, but they're just not returning my phone calls. You know, it's very strange. They're usually not like this, you know, but something's going on, you know. And and that's kind of where we got stuck um, for a little bit until we hired the Uzbekistani airline. Wow. Um, and what, what po- like, so how much ammo... How much of this, of these 100 million AK-47 rounds, did you guys end up delivering to Mm. Afghanistan? So we ended up delivering, um, and I remember the number because it was in the court case, you know, uh, 71 aircraft loads. 71 aircraft loads. Each with about a little under 3 million rounds each. Okay. Yeah. So, no, it was more, yeah, because it was 100, actually, I think they put it up. It's not even half, right? uh, Well, 70 times 7 times 3 is 21. So that's actually more than, than yeah, that's like, uh, that's uh, that's a little bit under 200 million rounds. But it it wasn't just, it wasn't just the AK-47 rounds that we were delivering. We were also delivering uh, 7.62 by 54 rounds, which is machine gun rounds. Mm. Um, We were delivering other types of ordnance as well, like uh, uh, mortar shells and, Mm. and, um, and uh, grenades and stuff like that. So, yeah. At any point, did you guys actually, we talked about this in the beginning, but at any point, did you guys entertain the idea of driving it there? <laughs> or was that just totally, I mean, in the movie, yeah. you guys drive through the triangle of death. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so we did uh, think about using rail. Okay. Um, but uh, we were told that that it, the uh, security of that would not be good mm-hmm. and that, you know, it would be impossible to get it insured because, you know, you're driving through a bunch of like warlord territories. Mm-hmm. And if they find out that there's ammo on that train, they're going to stop the train and take the ammo because, you know, that's you know, what warlords do. So, yeah, so they, it, you know, we looked into a few different options. We looked at like do, going by boat to Karachi and Pakistan and driving by truck mm. to uh, to Kabul or t- going by rail through, uh, you know, the Central Asian countries. But uh, in the end, it was just too risky. Um, and we realized that we had to uh, fly it there. And because we had the idea to repackage the ammo and reduce the weight, it became profitable to fly it there, even though it wasn't before, but you know, so that kind of gave us, we would have made a lot more money if we were able to do a rail or, Mm -hmm. or boat because that would have drastically reduced the cost of transportation. But it was also much, much more likely that we would lose the shipment completely, in which case we would be really fucked. Right. Uh, So it wasn't worth the risk. So that's completely fictionalized scene driving through the triangle of death. (laughs) So, so, so the the scene where we drive through the triangle of death is actually not 100% fiction. It uh, actually did happen, but not to us. So it happened to Stephen Chen, the screenwriter of the War Dog screenplay. Before he was writing screenplays, he was a, uh, a journalist and he wanted to cover the war in Iraq in 2003. He couldn't find a a, um, a flight into Iraq because you know they weren't doing commercial flights. So he got a flight into Jordan and then hired a driver to drive him to Baghdad from Jordan. And he got chased by insurgents and got saved by the army. The whole thing actually happened to him. Uh, but you know, when he was writing the screenplay, Todd, Todd Phillips director was like, man, we need more action in this movie. Why don't you put in your story where you were driving through the triangle of death, you know, into that. And fascinating, you know, the Beretta deal was a real deal. Uh, you know, but it didn't happen like that. We actually ended up not delivering the Beretta deal. (laughs) Oh, really? That was one of the, (laughs) one of the few contracts that we defaulted on. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, at, so at what point did you get an inkling or did you get an inkling at one point? Did you get some like sort of of feel that Ephraim was going to fuck you over? Uh, once, once the deal was going smooth, right. And, you know, once the, once we were delivering, like we were doing like three aircraft loads per week, like every other day there was an aircraft delivery and everything was going smooth. We got all the overflight permits, you know, the hard work was done. All the hard work was done. And, you know, so because all the hard work was done, I started showing up at the office less, you know, Mm -hmm. because I didn't have to be there for 16 hours a day, you know, talking to people, you know, and, um, you know, stressing out and, you know, so I was taking like a break and, you know, I was still managing the uh, logistics and making sure everything was, you know, the planes were arriving on time and people, you know, were getting paid and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, the documents were getting sent to the right people, but you know, it wasn't like a, a 16 hour day anymore, you know? Right. Um, and then he started complaining. He was like, hey, you know, you're not, you know, come to the office anymore. I'm like, I mean, is there a reason I should be coming to the office? He's like, yeah, I could really use your help on, you know, these other deals I'm working on. And I'm like, uh, are you going to give me a, a cut of those other deals? He's like, but you didn't set up those deals. I just need your help on them. I'm like, well, but I only get a cut on the things that I work on, you know? Right. And he's like, yeah, but if if those these deals fail, the whole company goes bankrupt and then the Afghan deal fails. You know, so therefore you're responsible to make sure that the whole company, I'm like, well, then give me a piece of the whole company. Right. And he was like, okay, okay, okay. I'll tell you what, I'll give you 1% of the company. And I'm like, I think I'll keep my 25% of the Afghan deal. Right. <laughs> Cause that's like, you know, 90% of all the money coming into the company is yeah, the Afghan deal. Cause you know, that's what he was thinking in his head. Exactly. Like, I give him 1%. I can cut him out of that 25%. Eight, that's exactly what. Yeah, wow. that's why he said it. And so I was like, no, nah, no, thanks. I'll, I mean, you know, if you want to give me 25% of the, and he starts, he's like, don't be ridiculous. You know, I'm never giving you 25% of the company, you know, mm. don't be ridiculous. And I'm like, well, then I'll just keep my, you know, 25% of the Afghan deal. And, you know, then he was like, you know, you know, a lot of people, uh, the other guys in the, at this point we had, it started off just me and him, but like at this, by this point we had hi- hired like maybe 12 or 15 people. Um, uh, you know, so they were like, you know, the, the office was, had a decent staff and he's like, a lot of the guys around the office think that you don't deserve your, uh, commissions because you know, you're not, you know, you're not working as hard as they are and they're making way less than you. I'm like, yeah, but that's you know a different deal than what you did you know like why are you even who's saying that anyway i mean i was like on great terms with everyone i was like the good guy he was always the guy screaming at everyone everyone you know was like you know was always stressed out around him you know uh so i was like who's saying that that i don't deserve the money i'm making he's like it doesn't matter it doesn't matter you know it's it's confidential but Mm -hmm. uh but you know a lot of guys are thinking that and you know so i'm like you mean you're thinking that (laughs) so i'm like what you don't like he's like uh, you don't think i uh, um, uh, that I deserve to get paid what we agreed upon. He's like, he's like, yeah, you know, like, I don't think that you're, you're, you're putting in the work that, you know, that, um, that you need to be putting in, you know? So therefore I think that, you know, it's, you're not pulling your end of the bargain. I'm like, what are you talking about? We're delivering, right? Right. The contract's going well. <laughs> I, you know, our deal isn't that I need to work X number of hours. I'm not a salaried employee. The deal is that, you know, I get the contract to, to go and then I get a commission off that contract, regardless of how many hours I put in. And he's like, listen, I'll tell you what, we'll make you a, a you know, a, uh, you know, a, a official like officer of the company. You'll make a hundred K a year, you know, and you get 1% stock 
that's my final offer, you know? And I'm like, I don't want a hundred K a year. I'm about supposed to be making like millions of dollars from this contract. Uh, you know, I will take what we agreed upon. And he's like, uh, he's like, well, take it or leave it, you know? And I'm like, I'll see you in court. And I walked out the door and I'm like, go fuck yourself. You know, wow. I mean, like I'm not, I'm not going to do that. So, so yeah, so I left and, uh, it was one of the most <laughs> stressful times in my life because I'd been living off my savings until this point, right? you know, cause like all the money I was making in previous deals, he insisted I roll it into the next deal. So I couldn't pull to that fund money out. The Afghan deal. Yeah. To fund the Afghan deal. He's like, we need every penny we can get, right. you know, like we, we need to, you know, have your money to, you know, I'm putting all my money in. You should put all your money in. It's only fair, you know? And, uh, and so that all my money was in his possession. What was your 25% cut going to be of the Afghan deal? So if we had completed the thing to the end and delivered all 300 million, mm -hmm. we were making an average of, okay, so we had bid it at 9%, right? Right. But Ephraim had a real talent for renegotiation, right? Uh, as I experienced, right? But he <laughs> renegotiated on everybody. So when he, when, when we won the contract, he went back to all our suppliers and he's like, guys, I've got the contract. There's no competitors, just me. You want to do this deal? You have to go through me. Now I'm going to need a better price. I know you gave me a price before and you said that was your best price, but I need you to dig real deep because I've got other people who are going to give me better prices and I can go with them. So like he would renegotiate everything like after the fact and he'd never stop renegotiating, which is how the whole Albanian thing blew up in our faces. Um, but because he was so good at that, and he did a lot of it successfully. It didn't always blow up in his face. Um, I'd say mostly he was successful at it. Uh, we ended up increasing our profit margin to about 20%. Wow. Yeah. And so we would have made, if we had delivered on the $300 million deal, we would have made profit about $60 million. $60 million yeah. profit total. Total. Which 25% of yeah. that is yours. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I was... Uh, looking forward to making that $15 million. And, uh, you know, my plan was to, as soon as that contract was done to quit because I couldn't stand working with him. He was just such a stressful person to be around. And, uh, and I didn't, wasn't even interested in the business to be honest. Like it was kind of cool to be involved in like geopolitics and, you know, and all that stuff. And like, I felt like a hotshot, you know, dealing with all these countries and, you know, arranging aircraft of ammo and, and all this stuff. But I was like, you know, I don't really want to do this for the rest of my mm. life you know, I want to do something more enjoyable. I've always been a musician. Um, so I've want, you know, I was like with, you know, $15 million or whatever it is that we end up making millions of dollars, I'll be able to, uh, you know, fund a music career, you mm -hmm. know, you know, fulfill my teenage dream of being a rock star, right? What, what teenage right. boy doesn't want to be a rock star? Right. Yeah. So, but right out, so right after you, uh, told Eph Ephraim, you're going to see him in court, basically yeah. you walked away from him. You didn't talk to him anymore. Yeah. Um, you, you didn't, did you start your own company? I did. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you had made contacts because you went to a trade show in Paris, I believe it was. Yeah. That was one of the trade shows. So it was to, one yeah. of the big just yeah. military industrial complex trade shows where yeah. there's just, what, what was, what was there? Was there like drones on display and shit? Yeah. Like, so it's called Euro Satori. They, okay. they still have it every year. Um, uh, I think you need to be in the industry to get an invitation. So it's not like you can't just buy a ticket. Uh, but if you have a company that is in that industry, you can 
get tickets to it. Uh, and yeah, and it's it's focused on uh, military equipment. So you have uh, you know the Lockheed Martins, Raytheons, uh, Northrop Grumman's of the world, uh, BAE Systems, all these all the companies from all over the world, not just America. Mm. Um, uh, go and they display their latest hardware and you have everything from like small arms, like pistols and bulletproof vests and, and, you know, boots and camo gear all the way up to like tanks and like helicopters and drones. And they had like, um, this like live fire demo area where there was like a, it was like a, like a stadium where they had like bleachers and like a big field, mm-hmm. not a stadium. It was more like bleachers next to a big field because uh, it wasn't surrounded by people. And they had like, like tank, like tanks, like jumping dunes and like air, like, uh, like attack helicopters shooting targets. It was super cool. It wow. was super cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Yeah. They had like military robots that were designed to climb walls and it was really, really neat. And you were there <laughs> yeah. as a young kid yeah. trying to look, Trying yeah. to look snazzy, trying to look like a big shot. Yeah. Rubbing shoulders with some. Yeah, yeah. I got my best suit on. Warlords. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We we pretty much modeled our look on on Nicolas Cage. You <laughs> that know? was fucking incredible. Yeah. We're like, dude. we got to get a suit like his. We got to get glasses like his, a, a metal briefcase because that looks cool, yeah. you know? And so we were like, we, we you know, we got to get them to take us seriously. So that that was like, that was uh, what we did. So you were able yeah. to utilize some of the contacts you made yeah. there for your new company. And so what yeah. you started to do, you started just going on the website, trying to find contracts to yeah, bid? Exactly. So I figured, Hey, you know, I've just been doing this, ju- this work for like a year and a half at that point, mm-hmm. something like that. And you know, uh, uh, we won some big contracts. Uh, so I knew how the business worked. Um, so I registered my new company with the government and I started looking for, uh, contracts, but for like before that, I, I took like a month and a half off because I was just so burnt out. Like I'd been working like crazy. And then, and then I realized that I was going to make no money and that like super stressed me out because I realized, you know, I was, I better make some money soon, you know, mm-hmm. because I'm going to run out. And, um, uh, so yeah, I was like super, super stressed out, but eventually got the new company up and running and, uh, I, I bid on, I think it was like a, like a $3 million contract. I forgot what it was like for anti-aircraft ammo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I was informed by the government that I, they wanted to do the, the, uh, like some of the audits, which was the final pre-award phase you know, that similar to what we had gotten Mm -hmm. much less intense than what we did for the Afghan contract, but they were, but like they gave indication that they were about to award this contract for me to me. And I was going to make like a million dollars on this contract, just this one contract, because I had a great profit margins, uh, you know, like found a really good supplier through one of my contacts. And like the day before they were going to award the contract, literally the day before the New York times article broke, and the front page of the New York Times had my mugshot on it, as well as Ephraim's mugshot, next to a picture of rusty-looking ammunition. And they said that we were delivering like low-quality ammo, and it was like it became a big scandal um, because the where where they got that picture was we had delivered like uh, I think Ephraim had bought had bid on uh, like thirty thousand rounds of Bulgarian ammo. It wasn't even the the Chinese stuff from Albania. It was Bulgarian ammo. And he had bid on it sight unseen. It was dirt cheap. And like, but he, you know, it wasn't a large enough quantity to go fly over there to inspect it. So his thinking was, 
you know, it's so cheap, we'll roll the dice. If they accept the ammo, we'll make a lot of money. If they don't accept the ammo, it's not such a big, right. you know, uh, loss, right? Turns out, not surprisingly, the ammo was total shit, you know, and it was rusty. And when it got delivered to Kabul, it was rejected. Uh, you know, they look, took one look at it. And they're like, we're not giving this to soldiers, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, uh, in Kabul, they didn't have like ammo uh uh you know disposal services right so they what they did is they just stuck those few pallets of bad ammo like the side of the runway and it just sat there for like months um you know while they tried to figure out what to do with it the new york times after the after costa informed them about this whole story and they started investigating they flew over to kabul and they started talking to some of the uh, military officers there about mm-hmm. our company. And they're like, oh, is there anything from, can I see any of the stuff that they delivered? They're like, oh, yeah, that stuff over there at the end of that, they, that was some crap they delivered right there. And so the New York Times uh, reporter went and photographed that. And, uh, and, you know, they made it appear like that was like all the stuff we were delivering, mm-hmm. you know. So, so, the, so the, um, the, uh, uh, the front page... Uh, a story was that these two young stoners, because they'd gotten the whole stoner, they'd gotten our mugshots actually from another incident where Ephraim had picked a fight with the valet on his 21st birthday. Oh, yeah. yeah. And um, this is a story where you, got, you, guys, you guys ended up calling the cops on the valet guy and then you guys ended up and we arrested, got arrested exactly and they didn't yeah. find a little baggie of coke in your sock <laughs> they didn't yeah right, so right. yeah they were so okay, I'll, I'll, I'll digress and go into it's a funny story so yeah so so what happened it was Ephraim's 21st birthday this is a few weeks before we won the Afghan contract mm-hmm. we won it uh his birthday is in December 15th 16th I forgot mm. but like um but it this like we won it the contract in January early January so uh it was his 21st birthday and he's like we're going out and we're partying let's do this and so we go and he was living in one of these fancy buildings where they have uh where they require you to valet your car right, right? like even if you live there you you can't park your own car but he had, I don't know what happened, but he had bad blood with the valet guy. And he was this like little skinny Cuban guy. Right. And, uh, and um, so he, like we got to the valet and the valet guy wasn't there. And so he's like, oh, he's not even here. Fuck this guy. Let me just see if I can get my keys from the valet, you know, closet. He opens up, the closet was unlocked. He opens up. He's like, oh, here's my keys. I'm let, just, let's just go get my car. Right as he's getting his keys, the valet guy comes like around a corner and sees him rummaging in his closet, you know, and the guy gets, you can't go in there. You know, that's, you can't do that. You know? And he gets really mad and he like starts running at Ephraim and Ephraim's like, whoa, whoa, I just want my keys. And, you know, like kind of like getting back in his face, you know, and the, the, the Cuban guy just clocks him right across the face, just like that. Like he, he threw the first punch. I, I saw it and clocks him right across the face as, and then Ephraim starts, you know, fighting him back, you know, punching him back. There's a security guy, the condo security guy runs over and both him and, and me and the security guy run at them. And we both pull, you know, I pull Ephraim and he pulls the other guy, you know, to separate them. Ephraim's shirt is all like ripped and, and like, you know, and stuff. And, and Ephraim's like screaming, you motherfucker, I'm going to get you deported. You piece of shit. You know, uh, and I'm calling the cops and, and Ephraim's like, Oh, my shirt is ruined. Let's go up. And, you know, I need to change my shirt. And I'm going to call the cops on this fucker, you know? Mm-hmm. And so we go up to his place and, uh, 
uh, he gets changed and and like we look out his balcony, we see that a few cop cars. Uh, he calls the cops, and mm-hmm. and we see like the cops were right there. They were very close by. Miami Beach is pretty small, and so the cop cars, like three, four cop cars, like pull into the driveway of his building, and um, and out where like going down in the elevator, and he goes to me. He's like, hey, you know, uh, um. I've got some coke on me. You know, if, if they're going to arrest anyone, it's going to be me. You weren't even involved in the fight. So, you know, so why don't you hang on to the bag of coke? Mm-hmm. And I'm like, uh, okay, fine. Mm-hmm. You know, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. You know? And so I'm like, oh, you know, we're about to talk to a bunch of cops. So I'm like, you know, just to be on the safe side, I'll, I'll put it in my sock, you know? So <laughs> yeah. I put like a little bag of coke, you know, plastic bag in my sock. And, and uh, we go to, you know, we go, we, you know, go down to the cops and, and Ephraim's like, that, that fucker, he attacked me, you know, you should arrest him. Mm-hmm. And the cops are like, okay, we need to speak to you separately. And they separate us and they, you know, the cop asked me what happened. I told him what happened. And then they go and speak to the security guard and to the valet guy. And then they come back and the cop tells me, okay, turn around, put your hands behind your back. You're under arrest. I'm like, what? What, what what do I have to do? You know, why mm-hmm. are you arresting me? And and the cop is like, oh, because the security guard said that you were holding the valet guy down while your friend was beating him. And I'm like, that's not true. That there's security there's security cameras all over. Why right. don't you go look at the footage? You'll see that's not true. That he this valet guy attacked Ephraim first, and I was just pulling them apart along with the security guard. So like, why why are you saying that? You know, um, and why don't you just check the footage and you'll see that's not true. And they're like, yeah, we don't need to check the footage. We have a witness. <laughs> so wow. like, so you're under arrest. You know, get in the car. You know, here, slap the handcuffs on. And I was like, oh fuck, I'm so fucked. I've got mm-hmm. a bag of coke in my sock. What am I going to do about this? I get into the back of the security of the cop car, and um back of the cop car you know it's it's the bench it's like a plastic bench with no cushions you know the the floor there's no like rug under the floor it's all like just rubber you know they designed these things on purpose um and i'm like fuck should i take it out you know should i just try to sneak it into a corner you know what if they look inside the car afterwards you know what's the best you know thing i decide i I get taken to the um it was actually a female cop who uh who you know was driving the car and get taken to the Miami Beach, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the police headquarters. And it, it, she pulls into into this like uh, underground parking garage. It's just me and her. And I'm like thinking, should I take out the, the Coke and, and put it? And she's like, okay, step out of the car. I step out of the car. And she l- gives a very thorough search of the back seat, <laughs> you know, like while I'm standing there in handcuffs. And I'm like, okay, well, that Thank was a God good thing. Yeah, that out. good thing I didn't put it in the back of it. That was a that was the right move there. And then she's like, okay, face the wall, and she gives me a very thorough search, a very thorough search, kind of like a very aggressive, you know, like where she like squeezed my butt. You know, I, I felt like she was like cavity like, search. It wasn't a cavity search, Borderline. thank God, <laughs> but but it was as close as it could get. Like I I honestly think. And whatever, I'm not like, you know, I don't, it didn't really bother me that much at the time, but like, but like now that I think about it, I was like, that was a very suspicious type of search (laughs) that she gave me, you know, um, you know, not that I'm going to sue the Miami PD for sexual harassment or whatever, but you know, but, uh, she definitely seemed to be enjoying herself. Yeah, exactly. Oh, whatever, (laughs) you know, um, uh, and so then I go into the, into the, uh, into the um, uh, police station and the, the, the police officer is like, okay, uh, 
uh, you know, I want you to take your socks and shoes off and mm-hmm. put them on the table. And I'm like thinking, I'm fucked. I'm fucked. I'm fucked. Right. You know, they're going to find the Coke for sure. And so I'm like, should I try to, you know, my, then I'm thinking, should I try to put the bag, should I take my sock off and try to have the bag under my foot? You know, is, you know, or should I leave it in the sock? I decide to leave it in the sock. Um, first thing he does, he asks me to see the bottoms of my feet. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, that was another good move. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm getting lucky here. And, and then he, he, um, uh, he takes, he's like, remove the socks from your shoes. I put the socks on the side and he looks at my shoes. I'd like, like, you know, like just dress shoes on. Cause we were going to go to a club and I have, I have flat feet. So I have orthotic devices in my shoes, you know, these like little arch things that you insert. And he, he had no idea what they were. And he's like, what are these things? You know, he's like, is this a weapon? <laughs> And I'm like, uh, no, those, those are orthotic devices. He's like, orthotic, what, what's an orthotic? I'm like, it's for flat feet. You know, it's a medical thing. He's like, he's like, are you sure about that? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. And he's like, there's no like secret compartments in here or anything like that. And he's like, like, he's like banging it. He's like looking at, you know, like trying to see if there's like an, like a secret thing. He like looks through like the spaces in my shoelaces to see if there's anything hidden in the, you know, like there he tries to like to undo the sole of the shoe to see if there's anything in there. And and he was just so focused on the shoes. And the, I guess he got distracted by the orthotic devices. He's like, okay, put your socks and shoes on. He didn't even look at the socks. Wow. So got really lucky. As soon as I was in the holding cell, flushed the bag down the toilet, you know, so it ended up being a, a misdemeanor charge of aggravated assault, uh, which they ended up dropping because mm-hmm. as soon as the we got the uh, foot the security footage from the condo, right? You know, we were able to show that this was completely, you know, ridiculous, and you know, um, but and, the, the uh, New York Times got their mugshots. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so that that long story short, that's where they got the mugshots. Yes. We were we were we were neither of us looked particularly good mm-hmm. because it was like four in the morning when they took those mugshots because right. they like hold you in a holding cell and then they need to transfer you to the county jail and and you know they take their sweet time. Mm-hmm. They actually put you in a prisoner transport van, which is like a. Uh, a um, like a cargo van mm-hmm. with like a metal wall down the length of it and and uh, and a bench on either side right so it's super cramped like you could barely like squeeze in yeah, I've been and in one. oh you <laughs> yeah. so you know and and you know they stick you in and most of the people they arrest are like you know homeless you know mm. and so or drunkard people and they stink really really bad i mean these people haven't like showered in who knows how long and and they lock you into this transport van and then they go chill you know they're right. smoking cigarettes you can hear them like talking you know watching a game and sat there for like while well, i'm like suffocating on like fumes you know yeah. for like i think it was like two and a half hours before they decided to you know go drive us to the county jail so get driven to the county jail and then they make you wait a whole bunch of more time and right. then they fingerprint you and take your mugshots. Mm-hmm. But at this point I'm like, it's like five in the morning. I'm like tired as fuck. I'm pissed as fuck right. because you know, it's like all, you know, bullshit. Um, and so, yes, I did. I look pretty bad in the mugshot is, mm-hmm. is what this story is supposed to illustrate. Uh, so yeah, so we looked pretty bad. Um, and of course the implication was that all the ammo we were delivering was this rusty low quality mm-hmm. ammo, which was not true, which was not true. It was just this one. Now I'm not saying that, you know, we, you know, that it, no responsibility. Oh, you know, we should have delivered this rusty ammo. We should have never delivered that rusty ammo, you know? Um, 
Well, the rusty it, ammo ended up being what less than one percent of all the ammo you delivered. It was yeah, it was. Oh like no, it was point zero 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 one percent. Exactly, it was yeah. crazy. Yeah, it's thirty thousand rounds out of uh, I think it was something like one hundred and fifty million total or two hundred million total of all mm. the different types of ammo. So yeah, it was uh, it was a very very small amount. What was the term they yeah. used in the contract that the ammo it had to be operationally right. without? What was the term? Um, man, it's been so long. Yeah, uh, serviceable without S- qualification. Right. It had to be yeah. serviceable without qualification, meaning yeah. they basically, they didn't care if it was super high quality ammo, as long as it went bang. Right. They just wanted it to work. That's <clears throat> all they care. Now, which is interesting because they have a different set of standards for the U.S. forces. Mm-hmm. You know, you the U.S. Army uh, has very strict shelf life limits. Like even if the ammo is properly stored, if ammo is properly stored, it actually could technically last forever, more or less. Mm-hmm. You know, like there is ammo from World War II that works perfectly fine because it was vacuum packed and not you know subject to extreme temperature changes yeah it doesn't really um by and large go bad um but the u.s army is super paranoid and super rich so they have very strict like like i think there's a i don't know the exact numbers but it's something like a 20-year max shelf life for ammo that's uh that's uh given to troops but they didn't care that you know they didn't have the same standards Mm -hmm. for the afghan and and iraqi uh allies Mm -hmm. You know, all they cared was for that purpose was that it was serviceable without qualification in their terms, meaning that it worked, that, that they would test it and mm-hmm. it worked. It didn't, you know, misfire or anything like that. And it didn't have like a corrosion on it or any visible signs of, right. of wear, which, you know, the 30,000 rounds did, you know, they, they were corroded. And so the, the guy from the DCIS yeah. based in Tampa started investigating you guys right. or started investigating Ephraim. Right. Um, and so, and he got in touch with the guy who was originally charged with boxing the ammo. Yeah. Started talking to him. Yeah. And then, um, so, so this guy from the DCIS who was investigating, um, Devaroli, mm-hmm. what was his, like how did he get tipped off to this whole thing mm. and what was his ambitions of like he was it seems like he was almost as driven to take down Devaroli mm. as Devaroli was driven to do this deal right right so i believe <clears throat> um and my memory is a little bit you know uh i don't remember exactly how it came because there was different a little bit of conflicting information uh but i believe that 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 Mentavlis, which is the guy, Mentavlis, Mentavlis, Michael Mentavlis, he uh, uh, he was a customs officer. He okay. worked for oh no no DCIS, Defense Crimes Investigative Service. Yeah, okay. he's like the like the Pentagon's internal FBI, and oh, then okay. he worked alongside customs with other oh. with customs officers. Oh okay. So uh, he was the lead investigator. Uh, I believe he originally got tipped off about Deveroli in general. Um, I th- I'm not sure which one came first, but there were two things. There was one, there was one competitor who was really pissed off that Deveroli kept on winning these contracts. And he, this guy, I forgot his name, but he 
insisted that there was no way that Veroli could be legally winning these contracts. He must be doing something shady. And so he started, he filed all these complaints with the, with the Justice Department saying that Veroli is like, you know, repackaging stuff or, you know, which he was, but he didn't actually know that. He was talking about different deals um, earlier than the Afghan contract. And uh, I think he was talking about like some weapons um, that Diverly was supplying, which he was doing completely legally, but this guy claimed he wasn't. So that kind of got Diverly on their radar. There was another incident where Diverly allowed uh, the State Department um, uh, broker's license to expire because he didn't want to pay like a $2,000 renewal fee and because he technically didn't need it to do business with the Pentagon. Uh, you, you don't actually need a broker's license to do business with the Pentagon itself. Mm-hmm. Um, you do need if you're going to broke if you're going to broker third parties like with other countries or, or private entities. You need a, a, a license from the State Department in order to broker military equipment. Okay. Uh, so Deverly had this license, but you have to renew it every year, and it costs you grand. Deverly didn't want to spend the money, wow. so he let it lapse, <laughs> and. Uh, and then because he let it lapse, there was some deal that came up, which Mintavlis, I, I think, thought he needed this license for, but he didn't have it. And so that, like, he, I'm not sure which came first, you know, the uh, the competitor, you know, kind of ratting on Diverly or this license issue. Mm-hmm. But the combination of those things really bumped him up the visibility mm-hmm. thing. And then the box guy came and and told you know them about that right. and that really got the investigation into high gear and it seemed like there was a political war going on between uh the investigator yeah. and the army because yeah. he kept going to the army trying to yeah. get them to stop your contract or right. freeze your contract they're like right. no like yeah. this is going fine the, right. the ammunition works perfectly yeah yeah they um so once Mentavlos discovered that, you know, the ammunition was possibly Chinese uh, from China. Mm-hmm. He sent an email and this came out in court. That's how we know about it. Um, he sent an email to the army saying, hey, this could possibly be illegal. We need you to stop taking delivery. And the army was like, you know, uh, we really need this ammo. And mm-hmm. uh, so if you want us to stop taking delivery, we need a letter from the attorney general of the United States. Uh, head of the Justice Department, requesting for us to stop taking it. Otherwise, we're going to continue. Um, and that letter never arrived. So I don't know if Mintavlis tried to get that letter and was denied or he didn't try. I don't know exactly what happened. But the Army didn't get that letter, so they kept on taking delivery on it. And uh, un- and they kept on taking delivery on it all the way until the point where the New York Times published their front page article. So they were informed like back in August, I think, um, about the Chinese origin of the ammo. And they didn't stop taking delivery until March of the next year. So like more than half a year, uh, they continued taking the delivery of the ammo, even though they were informed by, you know, the Justice Department that it was you know, possibly Chinese origin, but they didn't care. They said the, the, I think the term they used was the, the, the mission, uh, Trump, you know, the needs of the mission Trump, you know, your, uh, you know, your request, unless there's a letter from the attorney general. Right, right, right. Yeah. Because it was, it was working perfectly. I think there was yeah. even generals or something on the ground in Afghanistan that were, that yeah. were testifying that this is, this ammo works perfectly. We've tested a lot of it. We've yeah. never had any issues with it. Yeah. Yeah. They, and 
they had a big shortage of ammo as well. So uh, Afghanistan has a fighting season. They can only fight in like the the summertime because the you know there's very high mountains in Afghanistan, and in the winter the the weather is so bad that nobody can really fight. You can't like really you know trek anywhere you know to uh, to to uh, conduct military operations. So the fighting season in Afghanistan was coming, and they were out of ammo. And they really needed the ammo in order to supply, you know, the Afghan National Army uh, to fight the Taliban. And so when we started supplying the ammo, they were thrilled and they were like, we need more of it. We need more of it. Keep it coming. Keep it coming. And so, you know, when Mentavlis comes and tries to put a stop to it, the army pushed back hard against Mm -hmm. that. They did not want to stop the supply, Mm -hmm. um, you know, because it was critical for what they were doing. So what ended up happening with Mintavos? How far did he get? What, how were you going to be implicated in all of this? Right. How did they try to wrap you up into this whole right. thing? So um, I left AEY, uh, you know, I walked out the door in July of early July of 2007. And, um, the uh, um, customs and DCIS, uh, Mentavlis and, and his other agents, raided AEY's office mm. in August, August 23rd. Remember the day. Uh, I was, you know, scarred, emotionally scarred. So that's how I remember that day. But um, uh, I got a call. I had already been gone for like almost two months at that point, you know, barely recovering from my uh, ordeal, you know, dealing with Ephraim. And, um, and I get a call because I was on great terms with everyone else in the company, you know. Right. Uh, so I get a call from one of the secretaries and, she, you know, like on the morning of August 23rd. And she's like, hey, I just want to let you know that uh, the federal government just raided the office. You know, there's agents everywhere and they told everyone to step away from their computers and they're taking everyone's computers and they're boxing up all the filing cabinets and they're taking everything. So just heads up. And I'm like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, we're fucked. We are so fucked. And, uh, you know, I immediately uh, called Alex, who was, you know, was my best friend uh, that we had sent over to Albania. So in the movie, they have me go to Albania. You mm-hmm. know, that's not I didn't go to Albania. Um, we actually sent Alex, who was you know, a good friend of mine, over to Albania to oversee the repackaging operation. And uh, but in the movie, they decided it was simpler to just combine our characters. They didn't want to introduce another character, which was fine by Alex. Alex does not like the limelight. So he was thrilled not to be in the movie. But um, so anyway, I called up Alex because, you know, he's my best friend. And I'm like, hey, you know, this what happened. Uh, They just raided the office. And he's like, oh, shit. You know, let me call up. You know, let's find let me find out what's going on with Diveroli. He calls up Diveroli and um a guy named Danny answers the phone who he had replaced me, you know, uh, he replaced my role in the company. Once I left, he also got screwed by differently as everyone does, you know, but, um, uh, so Danny answers the phone and, uh, and, and Alex says, Hey, is everything, uh, okay there? I, you know, like I, I need, you know, um, these documents, you know, there's new airplanes coming, you know, uh, you know, aircraft coming and we need a load more aircraft loads. I need these, these documents in order to, for the aircraft to go. And Danny, (laughs) Alex told me the story and Alex told me that he, he, he hears Danny saying, you know, like covering the phone and telling Ephraim, Hey, Alex is on the phone. What should I tell him? And, and he hears Ephraim tell Danny, 
uh, uh, don't tell them anything. Don't tell them anything. Uh, uh, just tell them there was a bomb threat and you can't get them that document, those documents now. Just, yeah, yeah. We have to evacuate the office because there's a bomb threat. And so Danny gets back and he's like, hey, uh, I'll get you those documents soon, but you know, we can't right now because there's like a bomb threat. And Alex is like, whoa, why are they lying to me? Are they like planning on blaming me for everything? Like they're going to claim they had no idea about the Chinese stuff and it was all me, you know, like doing the repackaging. Am I going to be the fall guy? And he's like, fuck these guys. I'm out of here. You know, they're lying to me. I can't trust them anymore. And, uh, and so he leaves, you know, he flies, he's on the next plane back to the United States. And, um, and, uh, you know, Alex and I both, you know, hire a defense attorney, you know, who specializes in federal criminal cases. And uh, the first thing our lawyers told us to do is uh, go through your emails and search for all the keywords of all the things that you did, right? And see what written evidence there is. Mm-hmm. And so we did. And there was a lot of it. You know, we were very careless with emails. And, you know, the reason I think the reason we were so careless is because we were working all hours of the day and night in different time zones. And it's very hard to get people on the phone sometimes, you know? So if you have to like get them on the phone, you have to like wait till the next day for them to like be at the proper time. And we're like, you know what? Fuck it. Just send an email. We can repackage all the ammo. Make sure there's no Chinese, you know, documents in there, you know, it's all an email, you know, we're like, okay, this is all documented. We are totally fucked. There's nothing, there's no denying what we did. Um, and so our attorneys told us, you know, look, they've got lots of evidence here, you know, so probably your best, uh, uh, course of action is to just plead guilty and cooperate, right. you know, <clears throat> otherwise you, because, you know, what, what are you looking at? Right. You know, the, uh, you know, we're like, what's, what's the potential here, you know? Um, and they're like, there's a, a whole bunch of different ways they can structure it, right? The, they can structure it because the, the prosecutor has a lot of power of like what crimes they charge you with. Mm-hmm. So what they told us eventually, at first they actually told us, oh, if you cooperate with us, we're not going to charge you at all. You know, we don't even care about you guys. You guys are just incidental. We're really just going for Diveroli. He's making all the money. You guys didn't really make any money. So, you know, we don't, you know, you're not the kingpin here. You know, uh, he's the guy who's making all the money and making all the decisions as well. So, you know, it's really, we just care about him. So just cooperate with us and we won't charge you with any crimes. You'll just be a witness. And we're like, great, you know, because fuck that, you know. And so, uh, so we, you know, we tell them what we know and, um, then, then nothing happens for like six months, you know, like during the time Mentavlis is trying to get the army to try to stop accepting deliveries. Mm-hmm. The army refuses. Nothing happens. We're like, oh, maybe. And our lawyers tell us, well, you know, depending on the political situation, they may not, they may let this go, you know, because if the army wants to keep on taking delivery, even if they know something's going on, they may, it seems like they're not actually going to pursue it. They may let it go. Maybe there's no case at all. And then the New York Times publishes their front page article and suddenly everything changes. Hmm. You know, suddenly the army says, whoa, we had no idea this was going on. You know, we're going to cancel this contract and, you know, rebid it, you know, for, uh, you know, uh, to someone else. And and then the Justice Department, who had told us, you know, pretty much we hadn't like barely heard from, you know, the last six months. They're like, hey, guys, you know, uh, we're very sorry, but, uh, you know, we just we feel like we can't 
charge Devaroli unless we charge you guys as well because you were so involved in the in the whole thing. But don't worry, you know, because you guys have been cooperating, you're going to plead guilty. We're going to, you know, recommend to the judge that you get the minimum sentence. Mm-hmm. And we're like, you told us you wouldn't charge us at all. You know, now we're going to be a, you know, a convicted felon. Right. You know, even if we don't go to prison, that kind of fucks you up. So we were like, oh, well, we're very sorry. You know, like we, we can't, we, we have to do it this way. We're like, okay, well, you know, what can you do? So uh, we both pled guilty, you know, um, and uh, Deveroli tried to fight them for like, like a year and a half. He hired like the best lawyers in Miami, spent millions of dollars on his attorneys. I spent my entire life savings, which was not that much at the time because he screwed me out of all the money on, on my lawyer and I pled guilty. You know, it cost me like $30,000 to plead guilty. Wow. You know? Uh, yeah. And, and you know, yeah, sure, you could have a public <laughs> defender as the private defense attorneys like to call them, a public pretender, mm-hmm. right? And the public defenders have like, they're working on like 200 cases. Mm-hmm. They'll barely, barely remember your name, let alone like details of your case. But the prosecutors are only working on like five or 10 cases. So, you know, the prosecution in this country is way better funded than the defense. Right. You know, so it's not really an even system unless you have a lot of money and you could afford a few hundred thousand dollars if you're going to go to trial. That's what it's going to cost you to go to trial. Or if you even plead guilty, it's like 30 gay, you know, depending on, you know, how complicated your case is. So that was like all the money I had left. So I was like completely broke. Um. And Alex had to borrow money from his parents. It was stressed him out and his parents out. It was a really terrible situation for him. Um, And, uh, but, you know, we, we pled guilty. Uh, uh, Devaroli tried to fight it for like a year and a half, but eventually he realized he was going to lose. And he ended up pleading guilty as well after spending like $2 million trying to get rid of the case. But he ended up pleading guilty as well. And um, now, then they also charged Ralph, Ralph Merrill, um, um, you know, the investor in, in AEY in the movie. He's uh, a Jew who owns a bunch of uh, um, laundry places, you know, uh, laundromats. Mm-hmm. But uh, in real life, he was like a Mormon guy who owned a machine gun factory. So they charged him with the same thing they charged us, uh, uh, fraud, they called it. Mm-hmm. And, and oh, and it just just to give you an example of, of like how the how they work. So. They told us when they were like, hey, we have to charge you, you know, with uh, with, you know, like uh, with crimes in order to move this case forward. They told us, so this is, you know, what if you guys fight us, what we're going to do if you, if you decide to take this to court, we're going to treat each aircraft load that you delivered to Afghanistan as a separate crime. Because each aircraft load had a document that you signed. Uh, it was actually DeVaroli who signed it, but I was the one who took that document and gave it to the government. So I was culpable because, you know, I was involved and, um, and, uh, um, each aircraft load had a document called a certificate of conformance. And that document said, you know, what type of ammo was on the plane, the quantity of the ammo, the year of the manufacturer and the place of origin. That's what, and it it was a form that they gave us that we had Mm -hmm. to fill out. And in the place of origin, we put Albania, right? But, and they said, but you knew it was really China and you repackaged the ammo to hide the fact that it was China. So that is an act of fraud against the United States. And you did this 71 times or 71 aircraft, right? 
So each of these, um, each of these, uh, uh, so that's 71 counts of fraud and each count of fraud can get you up to five years in prison. Wow. So you can have, get maximum 355 years in prison if you fight us now. And of course it'll cost you a few hundred grand just to get a decent lawyer to, uh, mm. uh, to even have a chance of, you know, winning. Uh, but if you plead guilty, then we're going to combine those 71 counts into one. Mm. They have the prosecutors have that power to do that. They could decide what to charge you with. And, you know, so therefore you have a maximum sentence of up to five years. And because you pled guilty and you cooperated, we're going to tell the judge that you, uh, you know, you are repentant and you're going to be a good citizen from now on. And you were very helpful in, in this investigation. And therefore, you know, to give you the minimum on the low end of the scale. And mm. who knows, maybe the judge will give you just probation, right? right? So just probation or 355 years in prison. Right. Make your choice, right? right? And so it wasn't really a choice. And that's why the, the federal government wins more than 98% of its cases yeah. because the vast majority never even go to trial mm. because of the choices they give people because of they have this type of charging power. Mm. So we both pled guilty, of course. You know, we didn't really have much of a choice. And, uh, and Ephraim pled guilty as well. Uh, but one of the things that they, they, they make you sign a plea agreement where you admit all right. the things that you've done and then the government makes a promise that they will uh, tell the judge that you, you know, were cooperative and, and repentant and therefore to please give you a low sentence. But part of that agreement is um, is that you can't commit any more crimes in this period before you get sentenced, right? Because how are the how are the agents going to tell the judge that you're going to be a good citizen from now on if you commit another crime, right? right? So if you commit another crime, you invalidate your plea agreement, and then they could say whatever they want to the judge. So Alex and I, we were scared shitless, of course, you know, and we like I went back to school, I started studying mechanical engineering, I went back to being a massage therapist, you know, I was like. I'm like out of this fucking business. I, you know, I want, I'm going to be super care. I don't want, like my kid was a baby at the time. My daughter had just been born. She was like one year old at the time. And I was like, I'm not going to miss my kid growing up, you know, and spending, you know, her, you know, her, her, her childhood and maybe her, you know, her full childhood in prison. So, so, uh, yes, I went back to school. I started working for a nonprofit uh, for, uh, that, that ran a food kitchen. I was trying to make myself look as good as possible. And, um, and of course, I mean, like I was, I was terrified. I mean, I, you know, it's like, you know, it kind of wakes you up when you, uh, were you allowed to go yeah. back into arms dealing? So they told us to stay out of the business. It wasn't, okay. it, they said, you know, just to keep everything clean. Don't, don't do any of this business anymore. Okay. And in fact, I, so I was, uh, I was already, you know, because I had started my new company, uh, as soon as the, the New York times article got published, you know, I told you, I was like one day away from winning this multimillion dollar contract. The U S army said, Oh, we, you know, we just saw the, the articles, you know, uh, we can't, we can't give you this contract anymore. The bank also said that, you know, we can't finance you anymore mm -hmm. because of, you know, the, uh, reputational risk as they call mm -hmm. it. Um, and, um, uh, so Devaroli, so while we, so the reason it took three years from when they decided to charge us until we were finally sentenced was because Ralph Merrill, he decided to fight it. Mm -hmm. He decided, he's like, you know what, I'm going to take this to court. And so then there was a whole preparation for his trial and they didn't want to sentence any of us 
until his trial was over because they wanted us to use us, all three of us, Alex, me, and Deveroli, uh, you know, as witnesses in Ralph's trial, um, you know, as we were required to do because we had agreed to cooperate. So we were required to be witnesses if, if called upon. So, um, so his, he had a, tr a trial. It went into it like one juror uh, refused to convict him. So it went into a mistrial. Then they did the whole trial again. There was a, a second trial. And then he finally got convicted. Um, and Ralph got sentenced to four years in prison. Um, he spent like all his money defending himself. He felt really bad. And he got, and Diveroli ended up stealing a million and a half dollars from him that he had invested. He just never paid him back. So Deveroli stole like a million and a half dollars, according to Ralph. This is what Ralph, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, what Ralph told me. Mm -hmm. And um, as well as, you know, spending millions of dollars on his defense and he ended up losing and he went to, to four years in prison. So during this three-year period, uh, Deveroli, of course, couldn't keep out of the business. You know, he just, you know, they told him not to, but he just couldn't keep at, away from it. So he kept on doing, uh, uh, you know, uh, arms business, but through intermediaries but he's such like a control freak that whenever there would be like a deal that looked like it was about to happen he would insist on on cutting his inter his his own intermediary out of the out of the you know communications and getting on the phone himself you know so he could negotiate because he was a very good negotiator so he wanted to negotiate mm -hmm. himself so at one point he contacts he was trying to do this deal to sell i think it was magazines to um um to uh, gun magazines, you know, right. um, uh, to uh, some firearms dealer, I think in the Orlando area, uh, Central Florida area. And the, the guy who he was trying to do this deal with Googles him, right? And all the, the, the New York Times article comes up, you know, the New York Times article was reprinted by like every major newspaper in the world. You know, it got into the Associated mm -hmm. Press, uh, you know, network. And so like I saw my name popping up and, and like a, I have like, you know, like a Google um, alert, you know, for like my name. And I saw my name popping up in like all these, like every major city in the world, pretty much, because like all their local papers all reprinted it. Um, so he Googles him and he finds, you know, all this entire story and he thinks, man, you know, this guy is in a lot of legal trouble and he's trying to get me to do an arms deal. He's probably trying to incriminate me, to entrap me in order to get time off his own sentence, right? So he's like, I'm not going to get fucked like that. So he, uh, he calls up uh, the ATF the um, and he tells them what, you know, that Deveroli is trying to do this deal with them, with him. And, um, and the ATF agents are like, oh, that's very interesting. Why don't you keep on talking to him? In fact, why don't you introduce one of our agents as your partner? And so he introduces one of the undercover ATF agents as his partner to Deveroli. The ATF agent gets on the phone. He's like, yeah, yeah, we could do this deal, but... I need you to come up and I, I need to meet you in person in order to do this. So why don't you come up to Orlando and uh, we could close this deal. Now, he wasn't allowed to leave South Florida. That was part of the the plea agreement. You know, you're not allowed to leave, you know, that area. And so, but he was like, fuck it. I'm going to do it anyway. He drives up to Orlando, meets with the undercover ATF agents. And the ATF agent uh has he's like hey you know i just bought this new hk uh, uh handgun check it out and deveroli is, uh, is a gun nut right and he's like oh i love that i saw that thing just came on the market mm -hmm. let me see that baby <laughs> you know like, oh this thing is awesome you know and he's like we got to go shooting let's go to the range you know let's go pick up some ammo and 
the ATF agent slaps some cuffs on him and he's like, you're a felon in possession of a firearm. You're under arrest. Oh my God. Because <laughs> he had already pled guilty. So he was officially a felon, which, you know, you can get up to 10 years in prison if you're a convicted felon and you have, you're in possession of a firearm. So they arrested him for that. Uh, and he, you know, they argued to the judge that they should not grant him bail because he was already uh, violating the terms of his bail in South Florida to go to Orlando. So he's shown that he has no respect for, you know, the terms of his bail. Um, and so they kept him in, I think it was county jail. Uh, I don't remember. Yeah, I think it might have been county um, for like almost a year you know, while he was awaiting for the, while the whole Ralph trial played out. And eventually he, he could have gotten 10 years for the weapons charge for the possession charge. And he could have gotten up to five years for the, for the fraud charge, you know, for the Chinese ammo charge, because, you know, he had pled guilty. So they combined all the counts into one. They can't change that, mm -hmm. but they could, but they could recommend to the judge to give him the maximum sentence. So he could have gotten a total of 15 years, but he ended up getting four. So he hired the best lawyers in the business. They negotiated hard. Wow. He ended up getting four. And he served, I think, three and a half, something like that. Yeah. 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 Wow. What was uh, the biggest lesson you learned from this whole thing? Oof. I would say the biggest lesson is that be careful who you work with. You know, be careful who you associate with in general, not just work, but, you know, and that sometimes, um, you may think that, that, oh, you know, like I thought you know, my, my thought process the whole time was like, I really didn't like the, I didn't like working with him in particular. I didn't like the work in general. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't something that particularly interested me. I mean, it's really glorified logistics really, you know, mm -hmm. um, it's more complicated than logistics because you have to do the extra licensing for military equipment. But, uh, so it's just a, a more complex version of logistics. Uh, it's not the kind of work I wanted to do, you know, for my whole life. Never really wanted to be an arms dealer. Um, and uh, and I hated working with Deveroli just because mm -hmm. he was just such a stressful person to be around. But I thought to myself, well, if I could just stick it out just a little bit longer, a little bit longer, you know, I'll make, you know, I'll make millions of dollars and then I'm set. And then I could do, I'll be free, you know, for the rest of my life to pursue my passions. And... You know, like, I understand why I made that decision at the time. And I think that, that, you know, but like, sometimes I question, you know, like, if the deal had gone well, and he didn't fuck me over, right? Uh, and I made $15 million, right? Would I have stopped at that point? Mm. Or would I have been like, oh, I can make $100 million, you know? Yeah, I'm so good at this. I'm such a great arms dealer, you know? People tend to do what they're good at, you know? So... You know, I mean, I could have stopped, but I could have also very well not have stopped. Right. So, you know, I think that uh, being very careful about who you work with, you know, um, and not and, and taking the long view, you know, of, uh, you know, you may think that that you can make a lot of money now real quick, but there's a lot of ways to make money. And there is and what you work becomes a huge part of who you are. And so you have to be very careful about, about, you know, because that's most of the time you spend is, you know, your waking day is in your job, right? So you become the things that you work at. Um, so you have to be very careful about, uh, about what you do 
you know, that you're happy with the work you're doing, that you feel satisfied and, and fulfilled by the work that you're doing, who you're working with, that you actually trust them, that you like them as a person, uh, and, um, and think that, never th think that anything, you know, is going to be just a short-term thing because mm -hmm. in life, things just always extend way longer than you expect. And most of the things you do just keep on going especially if they're going well. Right. You know, have you, uh, do you ever think about, do you think about him anymore? Do you, do you reflect on all this yeah. at all? Like day to day or, or how much reflection do you do? And mm. have you had any contact with him since all mm. this went down? So, I mean, in the beginning I was reflecting about it a lot, uh, because it was just such a, you know, stressful, terrible, uh, experience. Right. Um, Thankfully, now I don't, I barely think about him at all. You know, the only time I ever think about him is when someone wants to talk about the story, you know, or, you know, there are some things that, you know, kind of remind me of mm -hmm. him, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, just the, um, um, you know, like there's, I think that, that nobody is all good or all bad. Right. Right. You know, there's a lot of things I admire about him. You know, one of the things I admire is his incredible work ethic. Never seen any work, one work harder, mm -hmm. you know, never. I thought it was bordering on obsession and was very unhealthy, you know, but, uh, but he managed to achieve things that 99.9999% of people never achieve because they didn't have that drive, you know? So, you know, I've, I've learned a lot about that, but I've also learned a lot about what not to do. You know, you can't, as you said, you can't burn you can't live your life burning bridges mm. i mean i guess you could and he has but eventually it will bite you in the ass and it did you know he spent four years in prison because he had no problem burning every bridge he came across right. uh and to be honest i mean not that i wish this on him you know i honestly i don't really care you know i wish him the best um i heard he's married now i heard about that so i you know i don't know what his life is like now i hope he's a different person though i doubt it you know uh because i've Alex bumped into him after prison and he was pretty much the same guy. Mm. Um, and, uh, you know, but, um, you know, like I, I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't like, I don't like thinking about him. <laughs> Excuse me. You know, I don't like thinking about him. Uh, and, uh, I, I'd be happy if I never interact with him again, you know, really? unless he, if he, look, if he said, if he calls me up and, or, you know, whatever, and he's like, Hey David, you know, I've been thinking a lot about, you know, our time, you know, that we spent and I feel like I really wronged you. And here's a, you know, a $5 million check of all the money I owe you. I would be like, we're best friends now, <laughs> you know, you can buy my friendship like that. Yeah. I mean, if he apologizes and admits his wrong right. doing and, 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 you know, and makes up for it. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I'm, I, I'm a forgiving person, you know, I'm not, I don't have like a vendetta against him or anything like that, you know? Uh, but he's never going to do that. I mean, at least every every bit of uh, evidence that i know about you know every my experience with him is that he's never going to do that so in that case you know i have no desire to interact with him again and uh i hope he doesn't hurt too many people you know along the way of what he's doing now how much money did you make overall with your whole career working with Ephraim? not that much i'm almost embarrassed to say <laughs> come on tell us <laughs> it wasn't that much it was uh i think total like before the afghan contract you know somewhere in the neighborhood of like 50 60k wow yeah i mean 
before the Afghan contract, I'd only been working for like, like, uh, eight, nine months, mm -hmm. you know, so not terrible mm -hmm. to start out. Uh, of course, you know, that money got rolled into other deals, you know, right. so it's not like I actually made that money and, you know, uh, and then once I won the Afghan contract, I wasn't going for any other contracts. So right. I was just focused on that, you know, so, you know, what are you doing yeah. now? What I'm doing now, my favorite subject. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I got into, it's very interesting uh, uh, how I got into my current line of work. Um, while I was under house arrest, um, I was, um, you know, I, I got sentenced to seven months of house arrest. I felt very, very, very lucky, um, you know, managed to avoid prison. Any amount of house arrest is... Right. As long as you spend know, time with your kids, right? Exactly. I was with my daughter, um, you know, and I got, you know, to eat out of my own kitchen and use my own private bathroom in paradise compared to prison. <laughs> um, you know, I could play my guitar. You know, I've been playing guitar since I was a kid. And uh, so I was playing a lot of guitar because I was bored. You know, I had the ankle tracker on my, you know, uh, so I couldn't leave the house. And uh, I really missed playing in part with other musicians in general, but particularly I missed playing with a drummer because, you know, the drums give the music the beat, which is the energy in the music. And, you know, people dance to the beat, right? Mm. Um, without the beat, music sounds kind of lame. So I was playing my guitar, but I really wish I could play along with a drummer, but no drummer is going to bring their entire drum set over my house. It's a pain in the butt to move a drum set. And even if they did, I mean, they would wake up my entire apartment building and they'd go nuts. So... Uh, so I bought a drum machine, which is a electronic device, uh, goes on the table, has a bunch of buttons on it. Each button makes a different drum sound. You can make beats on it mm -hmm. and play it back in a loop. So I would make like beats and, and, uh, you know, have like a beat to play along to with my guitar. But every time I wanted to change the beat, like to go from like verse to chorus, um, I, you know, like I needed to stop playing my guitar press a button on the machine to change the beat and go back to playing my guitar. And it interrupted the flow of the music. So I was like, I tried doing it with my toe, but it was super like, you know, awkward. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I need like a drum machine that's like in a pedal format, you know, something that I could control hands-free with my foot while I play my guitar. Mm -hmm. And so I went online to, I was sure someone made something like this. So I went online looking for something like this and I couldn't find it. And I asked my musician friends if they'd found any, if they'd seen anything like this. And they, they're like, I've never seen anything like that, but that sounds super cool. Let me know if you find it. Cause I'll, I'll get one too. That sounds super cool. And so I was, so I did a patent search. Nobody had even patented the idea, which shocked me. I mean, it was such an obvious idea to me. And so I thought, well, if everyone wants it, nobody's making it. There isn't even a patent on it. So this is my opportunity to you know, do something useful and constructive, you know, with my life. And so I started, I didn't know anything about developing electronic equipment. I started Googling it. You know, I learned about the different types of engineering and I was actually studying mechanical engineering in school at the time, but I was very low level. I was like doing like an associate's degree, you know, the first two years. Um, so it wasn't like I could do any of the engineering myself. Uh, but eventually I found a engineering team that could build it. Um, I first hired people that did a terrible job. I had to fire them because, you know, and then had to find new people. It's like a whole process. Took me three years. Uh, so well beyond my probation period. Right. Um, three years until I got a working prototype. And I, it was my first product. It's called the Beat Buddy, like your buddy that plays the beat. Yeah. Um, go check it out. Uh, is there Google. a website? Yeah. yeah. Singularsound.com. That's the company. Singularsound.com. Singularsound.com. Okay. Yeah. It's like, um, 
like you're playing by your singular self, you know? <laughs> and, uh, and since then we've come out with seven other products all aimed at musicians, uh, oh, you know, no in like a whole, uh, uh, yeah, we have, uh, like a cable winding device to wind your, 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 um, music cables. We have, a the world's most advanced looper, which records your music and plays it back in loops. Pull it up. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. Singularsound.com. Yeah. That's cool. Sound. Yeah. And yeah, that's the site. Yeah, there, so that's our that's the world's most advanced looper pedal, uh, which oh, you know wow. records your music and plays it back in loops. You can do lots of different layers of music as well as and you just tap those little chrome buttons with exactly. your foot. Exactly, that's it's a meant to be a hands free device. You see the wheel on the right side there. Yeah. Uh, you can control the volume of the different tracks as that's you lay rad. them down. So you could do like live mixing hands free. Uh, so that's our most recent and most technologically advanced product. Um, yeah, yeah, it's a little cartoon. That thing's version. incredible. Yeah, man. thank you, thank you. Yeah, so the one on the right is the cable winding device, and okay. that one, the one on the left, the Beat Buddy, that's the first product. Okay, that's and you have seven different products now. Yes, yes. Wow. And uh, and now we actually recently launched. My brother and I, um, we came up with this uh, um, uh, idea for our first uh, non musical product oh yeah yeah so we've always been like kind of complaining i mean i've really shouldn't be complaining because we've done very well with the music mm -hmm. company uh we got a whole bunch of awards i've met met some of like my musical idols who use my products you know no it's way. super That's cool amazing. yeah uh one of my favorites uh experiences was um uh so i'm a big allison chains fan mm -hmm. and like i learned to like to play guitar listening to their music okay. as a kid and their bassist, Mike Inez, he came up to me at a trade show and he's like, oh, you, you made the beat, buddy. I just bought one two months no ago. Shit. I'm like writing all my music on it now with it. That's you know? fucking incredible. I was like, man. I learned to play guitar listening to your music. That's so fucking cool. Yeah. That's so it was, it was super, super cool. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Man. So I have no complaints. You know, like we've done very well with the music company, but with Singular Sound. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there is the 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 industry aimed at musicians musicians are only comprise of like 10% of the population at most people would consider themselves musicians and people who buy high end musical tech products are maybe 10% of those right. so the addressable market is relatively small mm. I mean, you could do very well in in a small niche market mm -hmm. if you you know if you have great products which we do and we've done very well but we've always my brother and i've always been think, trying to come up with ideas you know that could appeal to everyone not just musicians right and so we were hanging out at my place and uh we were eating mango and you know mango is like very fibrous and so it like gets stuck in your teeth mm -hmm. and so my brother asked me if i had dental floss so we can like get rid of the um the mango fibers in our teeth and so my brother and i were like, go to my bathroom we're both flossing our teeth like looking in the mirror and we're like you know this kind of really sucks you know like everyone hates flossing but everyone has to do it or they should, right? Mm -hmm. So what if we create a product that can floss your teeth for you? Everyone would love that, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're like, yeah, that would totally do so well. And so we started coming up like, you know, spitballing ideas. We had all these crazy contraptions until we realized that, that water flossers, do you know what a water pick is? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, like what the dentist uses. Um, I don't know. The dentists don't use water. Well, they shoot picks. water between your teeth. Right? Yes. Okay. okay. I, I thought usually dentists use. Um, yeah. Some dentists do that. Okay. So um, so uh, you could buy a water pick, which is a water flosser, okay. which is um, uh, they've been around since I think the 70s or 80s. Um, and they've done 
uh, research on it, what it, the way it works is it shoots a, a single stream of water uh, and you have to like aim it at the gum line and you trace your gum line. Yeah, there it is. There, there it is right there. So you, it shoots a single stream and it's like uh -huh. a toothpick uh, right. made out of okay. water and you trace your gum line. You have to do both the top gum line, the bottom gum line, and then you have to point it uh, from the inside of your mouth, pointing out if you're going to do it properly, you know, pointing outwards and, and trace the gum line on the inside of the mouth. Mm -hmm. And that's very cumbersome. And you're, it's supposed to be an exact 90 degree angle to the gum line. If you mm -hmm. do it like pointing up at the gum, it irritates the gum. If you point down, it doesn't properly clean because it doesn't get under the, you know, the, um, the gum line. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people, when they first use it, uh, you know, it has a, quite a high learning curve, you know, like right. you, you know, they'll, they'll like splash all over their mirror, you know, they'll, it won't feel effective. You know, it takes some skill to learn how to do it. Mm -hmm. So, um, so a lot of people who buy water flossers, even though they're a lot more comfortable than string, and they've actually been scientifically verified to be more effective than string. Mm -hmm. uh, so the water gets under the gum line and washes out all the bacteria, uh, which a string does not do. So uh, they've done studies on this, and water flossers are more effective than string when used correctly. The issue is, is that a lot of people don't use them correctly. They do the angle wrong, or they don't do both right. sides of the teeth. So we realized if we could design a better water flosser, all the science is there that shows that water flossers are more effective than string. But if we could solve the pain points of a water flosser, then that would be a very successful product. So actually brought a, a P, uh, the, our innovation. So we came up oh, with, shit. with this, which is, uh, we call it the Insta Floss. Like instant flossing, Insta Floss, kind of like Instagram, but oh, shit. flossing. Hold it back a little bit, like closer to the microphone. Uh, like, oh, like right. the microphone is in focus, right? Yeah, yeah, perfect. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah. So the way it works is it's like an H shape. Yeah. And which your teeth, you know, you bite into it like uh -huh. that. And there's jets that shoot out from both sides, you know, towards your teeth. And so you just put it in your mouth and this mm -hmm. thing, this thing turns. So you just put it in your mouth like this. Mm -hmm. No way. That's and you're done. Sick. And it does both the outside, the inside, top and bottom. And it's just a, it's just a 10 second sweep. So it takes you 10 seconds to floss your teeth. Uh -huh. And because of the way it's built, it's at a perfect 90 degrees yeah. all the time. And so you don't have to like learn to do the 90, right. the angle and you could just lean over the sink and all the water just falls into the sink. So it doesn't splatter your mm -hmm. mirror. So it's a much easier to use device. It's faster. It's, uh, you know, easier to learn. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and like all water flossers, if you know, it's painless unlike string, you know, which mm -hmm. can cause you to bleed. Right. So, uh, we are manufacturing this, uh, now it's the first manufacturing run. Anyone who wants to get it, go to instafloss.com. Instafloss.com. So the website's yeah. already up. Yeah. Pull website it up, up, Austin. Instafloss. And Ken, so are they, uh, you're, are you still in the manufacturing phase of it? Yeah. Okay. So we're doing the first production run now. Okay. Uh, we're going to deliver, uh, to the people who pre-ordered. We've sold, um, uh, we've sold about 25,000 uh, units to people who ordered them in advance. Okay. There it is. Bam. Look at that. Yeah. And we're raising money as well. People can also invest That's and awesome, become an man. equity shareholder as well. That's incredible. Um, uh, and we're, yeah, we're, we're raising money to expand because we've had like a huge back order and, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, retail partnerships, uh, you know, potential, which we need large quantity to, uh, you know, to, um, to do large, uh, uh, manufacturing runs to get the price down 
and get it into like, you know, Walmart and Walgreens and all those stores. That's pretty fucking cool. Yeah, I'm definitely going to order one of these. Yeah. Thank you. I need one. Yeah. Everybody does. Yeah. For real. <laughs> flossing sucks. Everyone hates flossing. <laughs> no. Yeah. yeah. Nobody likes yeah, flossing. Nobody likes it. Yeah. Well, cool, man. Yeah. I really appreciate you coming on here and sharing yeah. this. I'm going to, I'll link both of those below. Thank you. So people can check them out. Yeah. Um, yeah. Incredible story. Thank I really you. appreciate your time. My pleasure. Goodbye world.